I wanted to be a writer, and I wrote descriptions of corn dances in New Mexico that were much praised by my English teachers. But um, it was many years before I came back to any, even any attempts to write. I thought that they led very glamorous lives, um, living in Tangiers and smoking hashish and sniffing cocaine in Mayfair. It uh, struck me as being a very glamorous and easy and pleasant life. Little did I know. <laughs> Listen, living, listening to Synchronon. Sick and wrong. Yes, you listen to Sick and Wrong. The Sick and Wrong, the world source for antisocial commentary. Good evening. Welcome to Sick and Wrong, the world source for antisocial commentary. I'm one of your hosts, E. Simon. Hello, comrades. I'm Kate Rambo. Hey, Kate Rambo. I'm, uh, Hello. I'm, I'm glad you're able to make it this week. I was actually a little worried. I was a little concerned that you might be in Canvey for the weekend. Canvey? Have you ever been to Canvey? Like, how far do you no. live from Canvey? I don't, I've never even heard of Canvey. It's a, it's a, I don't know if it's a British town or a British island, but... Uh, Essex, I guess it's in Essex. We have oh, listeners in Essex, right? We do. We have some very good listeners in Essex. That's bloody miles away from me, mate. Okay, it's so side of the country. Well, please warn that a dogging event planned for this weekend <laughs> in Canvey is not essential travel. So I was concerned that you might be traveling out there and uh, breaking the law and not showing up on uh, Sick and Wrong, and I don't want you to get law. arrested. Um, yeah, law. Essex police have issued a statement saying a social gathering such as dogging, is not essential travel. It would be against COVID lockdown rules. And so they issued a lockdown warning when they found out about this dogging event. Um, Apparently, there's a website called Let's Go Dogging, which uh, (laughs) shared with its 26,000 followers, it's a lot of doggers, uh, Mm -hmm. plans for this meetup in uh, Canvey, Essex, which I'm not sure where that is. Um, Do you have that site bookmarked? Do all English people... Have let's go dogging.com bookmarked. I'm surprised that the doggers are so well organized, but you'd think they would have <laughs> a totally different you would not have a let's go dogging.com, would you? It would be like <laughs> secret secret dogging society.com. Yeah, they seem rather like brazen about it. Like they're they trying having... to <laughs> they're trying to hide what they're planning to do. I always thought in my mind as well, dog is quite a secretive event and you'd like, you know, it'd be a case of Chinese whispers. Kind of like a secret rave where you'd be like, oh, I'm going to tell these cool people who I know who like to dog. I don't think you need to be so well organized. Well, like, 26,000 like followers. That's a lot of doggers. A lot of these people are just laughing their heads off, though. Because, like, dogging. I've it... actually known. Everyone has had sex in a car, I'm assuming. Everyone has driven out to the woods and had the sex in the cars. It's a part of, like, growing up. But dogging to me just feels like it would be really cold. Well, have you been out to the woods and had sex in like six different vehicles with Not like yet. 12 different strangers? Tell you what, after lockdown ends, <laughs> that's my first time. <laughs> it's not clear where the event's being planned, but police have warned people not to attend and they will be patrolling the island this weekend. Okay, Canvey's an island or, yeah, I guess no, it's an island. No, I don't think it is an island. No? There's no islands in Essex. Essex is like landlocked, unless... I have no you idea. Have to, like, row a totally boat confused over. by this. I don't think it's an island. Mate. I would never be able to find this dogging event. 
You'd be there going, where's the island? I'm looking for an island. (laughs) Yeah, I would be looking for it. It'd be like a Lord of the Rings quest (laughs) to try to find it. Um, Lord of the Conquerings. Now, that would be a good porn title. Um, So uh, the leader here of the Castle Point Council said that he wants this event stamped out. I'm hoping that it's the the first time that, that we can stomp this before it starts. I don't want dogging to gain momentum in our area. Just think of the young children being out and about. And think this is not something you'd want to witness. Did that ever happen to you when you were a child? Did you ever come across a dogging event going on and you, your innocence was lost? Dogging wasn't invented until around like 1997. So no, it did not occur in my childhood. What, people did dog in the 70s? I can't remember which footballer it was, but this footballer used dogging as an excuse to get out of why, like an indecent exposure. He was shagging in his car and he said he was dogging. That's when dogging got invented. Dogging so you, hadn't been Okay, you don't think that. you were conceived at a dogging event? Uh, no. No, because <laughs> my parents lived in London, mate. There's oh, so no pushing for dogging in London. No. They didn't have a car. Unless they like shagged on the underground so essex please have urged anyone considering attending the social gathering in canby to reconsider please we urge you to reconsider your weekend plans no dogging for you could you can you just already see all these disappointed doggers like bloody hell my weekend is tits up now oh bloody hell mate <laughs> i've cleaned out the motor and everything yes um, police are going to try to engage with people and make sure they do the right thing. Apparently, dogging is the wrong thing to do. It sounds like it is the it wrong is. thing, even when it's very consensual. But I agree that dogging is the wrong thing because it's cold. Like, you don't have to be cold while you're having sex. I just know? think it's... I, w- I just wouldn't want the fluids all over my car. And that. You would have to go and instantly wash your car, wouldn't you? Yeah. It's a, I mean, there's a lot of fluids being transferred. There is a lot your of fluids. Your seats would be all sticky. Your kid's got to ride in the back seat the next day. It's disgusting. I thought that you were going to say something a bit different about the kids. Of course you did, you nonce. Um, <laughs> so as much as I'd like to spend an hour and a half talking about dogging and uh, the ethics Same. behind dogging, that's not the topic of the show this week, actually. Um, so uh, this past uh, Monday, a, uh, a literary figure, um, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who is a beat poet, a publisher, and the founder of San Francisco City Lights Bookstore, died at the age of 101. Yeah, 101 years age. old, that guy. A I know. great age. What a full a life this guy, this guy lived. Um, oh, City Lights Bookstore, people, I mean, it's probably one of the most famous bookstores in the country. Um, it's actually, as a matter of fact, uh, Ferlinghetti was the first, uh, first person. Yeah, there's City Lights. Ferlinghetti, so it's, on the, it's, it's right on the corner of uh, Columbus, where it hits Broadway and Kearney, kind of China, border of Chinatown and North Beach in San Francisco. But Ferlinghetti was the first person to actually publish uh, paperbacks. I don't know if you knew that. He sort of... Oh, I didn't. Yeah, they say he democratized American literature by creating the wow. country's first all-paperback bookstore. Fantastic. It's pretty revolutionary in 1953. Um, Ferlinghetti, Lawrence Ferlinghetti died uh, this past Monday from lung disease, but 101 years old. It's a long time to live. Um, but yeah. he was one of the last surviving members of the Beat Generation, and uh, yeah, he played a uh, you know a, a, a crucial role in expanding the literary movement. Uh, de- definitely through this bookstore, he published Howl, uh, Ginsburg's iconic mm. book of poems. 
Um, and uh, you know, he was he was a very active. Uh, he was a social activist. Um, he, um, you know, I mean, he uh, hosted a lot of different events. There he is, right in front of City Lights Bookstore. Um, but he jump started a movement to make uh, you know literature more accessible. He, he considered considered poetry. Uh, like a weapon of the insurgency. So he like kind of defined this, the insurgent poet. Um, so City Lights is something that he co-founded uh, with another guy named Peter D. Martin in uh, San Francisco's North Beach neighborhood in 1953. In 1955, Ferlinghetti actually bought him out and uh, owned the business himself. And he launched the hugely influential Pocket Poet series uh, where they, he went on to publish works by some of the post-war period's uh, most important literary figures, including William Burroughs, Jack Kerouac, and Allen Gin- Allen Ginsberg. Um, he act- yeah, in 1956, yeah. he published the first edition of, of uh, Ginsberg's um, uh, Howl, infamous, infamous book. He was later actually sued for obscenity. San Francisco authorities seized uh, his copies of Ginsberg's uh, Howl and other poems, and uh, Ferlinghetti was arrested and tried on obscenity charges due to the book's references, many references to sex and drugs. Um, the case garnered like na- nationwide attention and provoked a huge debate over censor- censorship. So if you think about it, he's another uh, First Amendment warrior, much like Larry Flint. Of course Flint. he is. He's yeah, we're like fantastic. we're highlighting all these uh, icons here. Uh, Ferlinghetti was eventually cleared, and the judge ruled that the book had redeeming social importance. And that was a decision that would change the U.S. court's approach to uh, creative free speech. So if you think about it, um, there are many books that probably, many songs that probably never could have been published or recorded had it not been for this guy. I was just Charles Bukowski, was, he was a massive yeah. <clears throat> uh, part of this as well. He was like one of the first people who had the balls to publish Bukowski. Yeah, I mean, uh, he uh, published uh, Dogs from Hell. He published a lot of Bukowski books. Um so uh, City Lights was actually kind of a meeting place uh, for San Francisco's literati. And uh, Ferlinghetti, was, uh, he published a pretty famous book of poems called The Coney Island of the Mind uh, from I 1958. Yeah, so yeah. it's a great book. He has some, some um, uh, very brilliant poems in there. It was a big commercial success for him. He also uh, had several other books, I Am Waiting, an autobiography. And he authored more than 30 collections of poetry throughout his life. You know, still publishing, you know, books as, as, you know, up to 10 years ago. And the guy's like 90 years old. Brilliant. Kind of amazing. I know people like that make me feel guilty. It's like all I, I do is I fucking record I just have such admiration podcast. for him. Well, I mean, yeah, it's the same kind of deal, though. He's just, that's his life. That's his world. It's totally what he believes in. I have, like, yeah, I've got nothing but admiration for this man. Especially doing something where being a writer is hard enough, but being a poet is on another level. You're never going to make any money from poetry. But this guy has made poetry not only be relevant, but it's also keeping it constantly in the popular culture. And I so much admiration for Well, and not to mention, I mean, he was so influential to a lot of aspiring writers, like coaching them and uh, helping them get published and taking, you know, risks, like Bukowski. Like, no one's going to... Who else was going to publish Bukowski at that time? And Allen no Ginsberg's Howells, <laughs> yeah. you know, Howell in 1953. I mean, no one had the balls. <laughs> no, I mean, you're going to try it for obscenity, and he's just like, you know, fuck you. You're not going to be able to censor me. This is a cool picture of uh, Ferenghetti here posed on the uh, the doorpost here of City Lights. You can see there's uh, you can see Bob Dylan and uh, Allen Ginsberg in that picture in the background. 
You also see Love is a Dog from Hell. You know, City Lights doesn't really look like that anymore. Um, they definitely. I was gonna ask. Yeah, they updated yeah. it. They modernized it. But uh, it was. I always that that place always kind of holds a special place in my heart because when I was a strip club DJ and over in North across? Beach, if <laughs> yeah. you if you stand at City Lights and you look diagonally across the street, you see the Roaring Twenties Strip Club. So like right over there on Broadway, that that whole like strip of uh, of adult entertainment um, f- um, facilities. And so you'll see like a whole line of strip clubs and then right across the street is like the focal point of American's literary movement. And so I just thought it was a weird dichotomy to be like, well, I'm like sitting in the, you know, in front of just sleaze and strippers and porn. And I go across the street and now I'm like reading a copy of Howl. But so anyway, during my lunch, because I would just kind of walk around for like 40 minutes, um, I'd usually go over to City Lights and just kind of, you know, flip through books. I mean, they had a lot of other authors too, too but I mean, they had like a whole section of the B poets. So you could just like sit there and flip through books and uh, always felt intelligent when I did that, you know. They all go hand in hand though. All the all the beat boys were very salacious. Charles Bukowski's salacious. I oh, yeah. think they would have liked that their bookshop, their focal point was near. Uh, I think they would have enjoyed go, stopping over oh, and going yeah. to the Blue Light Special at the Roaring Twenties. <laughs> you know, uh, at the time, I think probably in the 50s and 60s, The Hungry Eye, which later became a strip club, that was my favorite strip club to work at the block, cause, mainly because it served alcohol. Um, but it was like a topless joint. But anyway, that place was a, uh, was a comedy club. And that's where uh, Lenny Bruce performed. Uh, Steve Martin oh. performed there. Yeah, like all these famous comedians. And that was kind of like right also across the, across the street from City Lights. I've read about that place. I didn't realize it was so close. Yeah, it was, uh, and then it became a strip club. But uh, not only was, so not only was Ferlinghetti like a published poet, you know, writing more than 30 collections of poetry, um, he led a, a very full life. He's a World War II Navy man. Like he, uh, you know, uh, piloted a sub in World War II. He was a, a fiddleista. He like supported uh, Castro, um, a Sandinista, a Zapatista, an anti-war activist, and an environmentalist. I mean, this guy like for a hundred years, you know, hundred one years, he lived a very full life. He's fighting the good fight, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, he traveled around the world, uh, giving poetry readings, taking part, uh, taking uh, part in festivals, like in, in political conferences in Chile, Cuba, Germany, the USSR, Nicaragua, Spain. You know, uh, lived in Mexico and Italy and France. Um, he actually, this is kind of funny too, he advocated for the impeachment of Dwight Eisenhower along with most of the succeeding presidents. He wanted them all impeached because of their initiations of illegal and immoral wars. He was like an anti-war activist. Yeah, no, he's, 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 like a, yeah, he's great. Um, and uh, on his 100th birthday, San Francisco made March 24th his birthday, Lawrence Ferlinghetti Day, just to honor him. Um but yeah, that's the thing. He gave people's poetry, he it, you know gave people's poetry an intersection with politics. He he called it poetry as insurgent art, is what what he came to to make it be. And yeah, and I, because of him, I mean, we had the Beat Generation. I mean, we we you know he published the works of these of these influential authors uh, to our, our society, which is pretty amazing. Um, city, I was wondering what happened to City Lights during the pandemic, but apparently. You know, the, this past year has been pretty rough on it. Um, oh, but I they, bet. yeah, they ended up doing a GoFundMe and a raise about three hundred thousand dollars to keep it, uh, keep the business afloat. Who owns it now? Who runs it now? There's a CEO and publisher, Elaine Katzenberger. I guess uh, I don't know if she owns it or if she runs it. Maybe his family still owns it. 
but she's yeah. the CEO of uh, City Lights, so I'm not sure. It's definitely not a public company. Uh, but they plan well, to keep good. it open and uh, build on his vision and honor his memory by sustaining City Lights as a center for so. intellectual inquiry. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a pretty amazing Wonderful. bookstore. You know, if you go to San Francisco, there's certain, you know, sites you should check out, like Alcatraz and, um, you know, Coit Tower and things like that. But C- City Lights, North Beach is definitely an area you'd want to check out. So an interesting thing about the, uh, the Beat Poets is, so after hearing about Lawrence uh, Ferlinghetti's death, um, Kate was inspired to uh, talk about a couple murders that occurred um, during the whole Beat Generation that I think a lot of people maybe like tangentially heard about but don't really know the details of um so we're going to get into that right now and uh talk about first of all um a murder involving lucian carr who's another like um kind of an obscure member i mean he distanced himself from the movement but because of this uh, particular murder what happens. and then we're yeah. also going to talk about a famous murder involving william burroughs so let's get into uh, lucian carr and what happened um, back in, what was that, 1954? Around then. So, like, yeah. Lucian Carr, there would probably have never have been the Beat Generation literature movement without Lucian Carr. That's how influential he was. He's, like, he's the main muse. He was, like, the starting fuse for the whole movement. And his murder is kind of crazy how he murders someone yeah so lucian carr that's the thing i don't know if there would be a beat generation without him there definitely would yeah because i'll go into like how influential he was to these to these many men i mean he sort of united these energy you know he united all these huge uh authors like you know ginsburg kerouac burroughs he brought them all together and this is even before neil cassie arrived on the scene but um but yeah, it's a tragic death that he was involved in that kind yeah, of so made him, turned him into, you know, the guy who initiated the, uh, the scene turned him into kind of an obscure figure. So let me get a picture. I can share a picture here of Lucian. Lucian You say Carr. obscure, but I mean, he ends up probably being the most famous of all the writers because he's yeah. the one that jobs the longest. So here you go. Here's a young William Burroughs, a young Allen Ginsberg, and sitting down in the forefront is a young Lucian Carr. So Lucian Carr was born to a socially prominent St. Louis family on March the 1st, 1925. And around the age of 11 or 12, he joined the Boy Scouts. One of his troop leaders is a man who was called David Camera. Camera, Camera, you get the gist. Yeah. David was around 25 at the time. So David was actually a childhood friend of William S. Burroughs because William S. Burroughs is from St. Louis. They were school chums. They traveled to Paris together. They go to Mexico. Um, Did Burroughs he... said... So sorry. wait, were they from the same town, William Burroughs and Kamer? Yeah, and um, Lucian Carr. They were all from St. Louis. Oh, okay, they're all from St. Louis, huh? So Burroughs had described David. He said he was always very funny, the veritable life of the party, and completely without any middle-class more morality because you're going to hear about how uh, david had literally no morals because david became infatuated with lucian carr this nine-year-old 11-year-old boy and to say he was infatuated is like an understatement because for the next decade lucian would like leave saint louis he would um, begin his college university education david stalked groomed and obsessed over lucian carr 
thought about him every day. He would follow him to and from school. He would send him daily letters, gifts, money. He would buy him clothes. He would like buy him any goods. Super he was creepy. trying to like woo him. Yeah, he was grooming. So there, there aren't too many pictures of David Kamer, but uh, here's one. I mean, he's this is yeah, this is like must be his like high school picture or something, senior picture, college picture. But he was so Burroughs was like what, like eleven years older than Lucian. Yeah, and so it's, he's the it, same age as a Camera. They're both um twenty, twenty five ish, and Lucian Carr at this point is eleven. Yeah, he's like in the Boy Scouts, and so Camera was like a scout leader or something, and then just became obsessed with this boy, a boy. A boy. Yeah. So, Lucian had said that he hounded him constantly for sex. And there is a bit of debate. There is debate out there if they ever have sex. If they ever did actually have sex. All, like, Alan and William and Jack all deny that they did have sex. But there's been a few people come out of the woodworks. But there is, yeah. like, nothing that is not up for debate is that Lucian frequently moved schools. He it's would creepy move schools two to three times a year to escape this creepy nonce. And because David, he was a trained teacher, he was a trained English and PT, PE teacher. So he could go and work in these schools that Lucian was in. Yeah, he would just follow this kid around the country. So initially, though, so Lucian's parents were separated when Lucian was like 12. He was a young, young boy, yeah. He was a young boy. So I think the mother welcomed David Kamer's presence in Lucian's life because he had like a, a paternal figure to look up to. To begin with. But I think her mother or his mother soon soon realized that there was definitely something more going on here. On here. However, she still let him go to Mexico with the man. How I mean, so Lucian would have been like what, twelve? Thirteen. I think this is before they kind of realized. Because like oh, Obviously, back then, the attitudes towards homosexuality were so different. It was so kept secret, wasn't it? So, And I mean, I d they didn't even know what grooming was back then. Yeah, I so guess you wouldn't know what was It would have been on. easy for David to worm his way in and appear as an innocuous Boy, Boy Scout leader. But look how creepy really... this picture is. I mean, maybe we're more you know, perceptive to this now. Of but, course, I think we are. But look at this. This guy over here, David Kamer, standing on the left of the this marlin fish that they must have caught. And, I mean, he's an adult. He's like a 25-year-old man. And then if you look on the far right, there's Lucian Carr, who is a boy, clearly a boy. Clearly. it's. I think it's exceedingly creepy that this guy – but I'm, once again, you're right. It's 1950s. People are pretty naive. People are like, you know – would give him would give him the his I'm sure his mom gave him the benefit of the doubt. It's like, oh, he gets a you know, is an innocuous relationship with a guy who's who's playing a paternal role in his life, and he needs that. You so know. at one point, um, Lucian went to the University of Chicago. This was when he was getting his graduate degree, and later on, he he claimed it to be a work of art. But this is like I think when the warning bells started setting off for his mother because he stuck his head in a gas oven. He was trying to do a Sylvia Plath, basically. A car was trying but, to off himself. He, he was trying to off himself. He was trying to commit suicide, although he downplayed it later on. And he did he got caught and it was, you know, came out as a cry for help. But now his mother kind of like she could see that something was going on here and she was convinced that the stress was from this like stalking dandy. And he had caused this breakdown. By this point, she had also moved from St. Louis and she was living in New York. So she 
said to Lucian, you're going to move to New York, you're going to come and live with me or live on the same street as me, and you're going to go to Columbia University. So you're going to escape. And that's exactly what he did. You're going to escape from Kamer. You know, it's interesting, too, uh, Lucian Carr's uh, hospital discharge had the signature of David Kamer as his guardian. (gasps) Did it? Yeah. And so, but I think, I think at this point, the mother's like, yeah, this is, this is getting weird. And I need to remove, extract him from the situation, separate him from this weird guy. So obviously, Lucian's going to move back to to move to New York. He's going to begin Columbia University. And it was around this time that Burroughs, William S. Burroughs, also moved to New York. And guess what? Surprise, surprise. Who else is going to move to New York too? <laughs> David. Seems like it was planned, yeah. But Lucian was really happy at Columbia University. He joined the Campus Literary and Debate Society, um, and he was soon mixing with a nervously brilliant Jewish poet by the name of Allen Ginsberg. And Lucian had started a relationship with a, a girl called Celine, and Celine introduced another nice piece of ankle by the name of Edie Parker. And Edie Parker, her boyfriend, was a French Canadian quarterback by the name of Jack Kerouac. So like go. this is the stage all set now. The players are all here. And like this is going to be leading up to the gruesome historical moment. So here's a picture. Yeah, here's a picture of uh, Jack Kerouac on the left. Doesn't it kind of look like he has a boner in this picture? I think I think there's been talk that Jack Kerouac was very well hung. <laughs> Is that way he has a Honestly, he had a big schlong? Like from what I've read, yeah, he was a well hung young man. There's definitely Allen Ginsberg because the two would certainly play hide the salami in my mouth together. <laughs> he uh, he's talked about like what a fine piece of meat he had in between so, his legs. Here's the two of them. Here's Lucian Carr on the right and Jack. Gorgeous Kerouac. boys. You know he yeah. looks so all American, doesn't he? Yeah, but he's French Canadian. Yeah. Yeah. But he was definitely the epitome of that kind of strong figure that the others didn't have. So they had the, they got introduced to Burroughs. They were this terrible trio in a way, but Lucian was the car troublemaker and prankster. They would haunt the jazz bars and taverns of Chelsea and Greenwich Village. And their whole aim, they wanted to shock the middle-class values. They wanted to devote their lives to art, to discover the undiscovered, total rebels. And for 10 months, David was on the outskirts of this group. He would certainly, you know, he would be at their parties. He, he'd he be hearing about everything they're doing because, you know, Ginsberg and Kerouac are having friendly blowjobs. So is Burroughs. He's getting in on that action. Their homo and bisexuality was like such a badly kept secret. But he was still quite closeted. He, I'm certain that he would have been jealous about how close all four of them were because they were if they were not in each of his thoughts they were definitely in each of his pockets because well, they lived together what's interesting about this too though is Kamer was good friends of Burroughs like childhood friends they'd known close each other for a friends. long time but Burroughs yes. was pretty enmeshed within this beat group they weren't called I think they're they called themselves like the libertine circle the libertine they were, circle yeah. they weren't quite okay. the beat generation yet but Kamer was definitely not included in this he, I mean, was he was not. he was kind of an outcast, and so um, what's interesting too during this time is these guys, even though even though they were homosexual, they kind of had these like beard relationships. So like Kerouac, I don't think was a full homosexual. I mean, he might have dabbled in uh, you know homosexuality from time to time. There, there he, is debate on that because I do think that 
one of the reasons that Kerouac died young is because he was very closeted about his homosexuality. But he was involved with Edie Parker at the time, who's an art student from Michigan. Um, and Lucian Carr kind of met, met Edie. And then there's Joan Vollmer, who eventually became Burroughs' common-law wife. Burroughs also, you know, openly homosexual, so it's kind of weird. But, I yeah. mean, it was a different time. I mean, this is like the 1950s. Oh, completely. Yeah, I, I mean, like, homosexuality was, like, illegal in Britain until the 1960s. That's the yeah. attitude towards it. So, time. I mean, I think that's why you had beards. Um, but I, I read an interesting thing, uh, an interesting quote here. When Carr finally met Kerouac, because Kerouac was Edie's boyfriend, and Carr was friends with Edie because he met her in art class, um, he said he was greeted by uh, a moody man's man's man slouched in a chair, demanding to be fed. Um, Jack had summed up Lucian at first glance, thinking him a mischievous little prick (laughs) when he first met him. Yeah, I think they're both right about each other. (laughs) Wonderful, I love it. So, so yeah, we were talking about um, uh, Burroughs, uh, William S. Burroughs and David. They were mates. They had moved over. um, They lived close by next to each other. But William S. Burroughs' eyes were beginning to be opened to like the absolute obsessiveness of camera on Lucian. Because he he burst in and William S. Burroughs is a lifelong lover of pussycats. Not pussy, pussy cats. He had cats his whole life and he would have scores of cats too. And he burst in on David and David was trying to hang Kerouac's cat. Wait, he was trying to why Kerouac's cat? Because Kerouac is clearly taking all of Lucian's attention. So he was a, this is like some fatal attraction type shit. Oh, yeah, this is some bunny boiling, but with a kitty instead. I don't think they had the term stalker back then, but that's exactly what's happening here. Oh, completely. You had an obsessive stalker. I think his psyche was like so destroyed and warped by this point because he couldn't teach. He couldn't like hold down a proper job. He was working as a janitor in his housing block just to keep his rent paid. And he would like hawk his goods to buy food and booze for like to take to their parties. Was this he man a, was he a was drug addict or alcoholic, Kamer? No, not compared to like the others. The like others, the yeah. beats were all into like um benzedrine and booze. But he was quite like laid back off that he wasn't in that lifestyle well but he must have been jealous i mean first of all he probably felt Completely. older he was probably jealous that burroughs was accepted and he wasn't um but then also i mean they you know that the libertine circle their crew you know would would go hit up all these different like bars and cafeterias and coffee shops and things like that hanging out with girls and they never invited kamer and uh, they did, they did he would tag along together. well he would yeah. tag along but, yeah, but he was uh, never invited. He was never invited. And then mm-hmm. also I read that Lucian had a bit of a mean streak when it I came to when it came to Kamer. Like he um Well of course. Yeah. So uh I guess when Kamer was around when they were hanging out, especially when Lucian was hanging out with Celine, um, he would give them disapproving looks, both of them, especially to Celine. Because he was obviously extremely jealous. And at this point, he was becoming very unhinged. But Lucian would toy with Kamer, and he thought it was funny. So he would, like, alternate invitations with snubs, and then he would create scenarios to humiliate Kamer in public. So I was reading, yeah, he would let him know where his friends would be on a given night. And when Kamer Kamer appeared, as Lucian knew he would, because he always would, followed him Mm -hmm. everywhere, um... He was excluded from the group, forced to sit alone at another table 
watching oh. him embrace Celine in front of him or engage Kerouac in male bonding. So, I mean, he, was this, he knew this guy was, was freaking out about this. He knew he was becoming an hinge, and he, he was, was egg, fucking with him. Egging him on. Well, he was fucking but with him. But wouldn't you? This guy's been stalking you for 10 years. You're going you're gonna to rebel against him in attitude in any kind of way you can. And when he, he would be feeling safe and secure around his friends, so you could do that type yeah, of stuff. I think, I think he, he'd feel confident around his friends to be like, you know, I'm going to inflict some kind of pain humiliation on this guy because... He hates him, obviously, and th- I, you know I think I think Kamer was so obsessive and so so much in love with him that that uh, Lucian start began to despise him, and this happened his whole life. His whole life, he knew this guy, you know. know. And so uh, I read here it's kind of a funny anecdote. So they were dining at some Italian restaurant in uh, Little Italy, and Lucian dared Kamer to eat a tablespoon of hot paprika, saying that if John Keats could do it, why can't you? And so Kamer was oh, yeah, so desperate. The badass. <laughs> he was the so badass. He died at 21. <laughs> yeah. he, but he was so desperate to please Lucian and like impress all the friends. He ate the paprika, and I guess he paid for it afterwards. <laughs> well, of course he would. Well, he's going to pay for something afterwards. So this is around June of 1944. Kerouac, he'd been a merchant sailor for a few years earlier, and he was convincing Lucian that they should ship out and see the world and, you know, get some writing experience. Kamera found out about this and it just, it sent him on to another level of anxiety. And he now started breaking into Lucian's apartment and all he would do was watch Lucian sleep. Wow, at night. He'd break into at his night, apartment At night, he broke in sleep. several times and he did this, but one time he got caught. They all knew about this too. So a few months later, this is in August, they got kicked, Lucian and Kerouac, naturally, they got kicked off a ship that had been bound for Paris. So they began drinking early in their regular Broadway haunt, which was called the West End Bar. This is where they all hung out. I wonder if that place is where that place is. It's probably not around anymore. I knew I should have Googled it. I was like, I'm going to Google it. It's probably not around anymore. So Jack left to go home to Edie and... David Camera, he found Lucian alone and pretty pissed. You know, he's pretty pissed means drunk for yeah, the yeah. audience, the American audience. And he was despondent. And it was about two, three a.m. So from here, we only have the confession that Lucian gave to the police to go by because nobody ever saw David alive again. This was it. So the two went to Riverside Park to drink wine by the river. Now that now that's a little weird. These two men, two a.m. One extremely inebriated, the one, the other one who's just obsessed with him, go to a park to drink wine together. But like you were saying before, David was a constant presence in Lucian's life. He was always there at parties at his house. It wasn't unusual for them. That's why there was these kind of rumors that maybe Lucian had had sex with David, and that's why David was so enticed. I'm thinking there probably was. I bet you what happened. You know, he's groomed for so long. He was young. He probably maybe did have some kind of, like, sexual incident with him or whatever and probably was just, like, felt guilty about it, tried to move away from the guy, have a, a relationship with a woman, like a heterosexual relationship. And he, yeah. And, uh, but that incident, you know, that sexual activity that he had with Kamer probably just, at that point, made him just even Escalated. more deeply in love. Yeah. Maybe, but, I mean, and David is certainly feeded an the obsession. Man. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, yeah. he, he's, like, an unhinged pedophile 
Yeah, he's a nonce, mate. He's yeah. a bloody nonce. He's a nonce. So they're in, you know, it's 3 a.m. in the morning. They're in Riverside Park. And David, he, David turned to Lucian and he threatened to kill Celine, to kill his girlfriend. He started repeating how much he was in love with Lucian, how he couldn't live without him, how Lucian couldn't live without him, and how he would kill Lucian and then himself if Lucian didn't have sex with him. And it was during all of this, all these pent up years of anger and hatred towards David. He didn't want, these advances were unwanted and he finally snapped. So they started struggling on the riverbanks. There was a bit of a wrestling match going on. And Lucian managed to pull out his trusty Boy Scout knife, pocket knife that he'd had since he was 11. And he stabbed his attacker and stalker twice in the heart. And that wow. was it. With his Swiss army knife, just. With his pocket knife. So, you know, in the contest between a pecker and a knife, the knife usually wins. And David was dead. That was it. So, Carr, in a, in a bid to hide the body, he tied the dead pederast's hands and feet together, hands and feet, <laughs> with his own shoelaces. He wrapped his arms, like, tight around his body with his own belt. He found some rocks. He weighted the body down. He took his cigarettes and his glasses, which were co both covered in blood, and he rolled the dead homo's body into the murky waters of the Hudson River. Now, that is kind of interesting. This, this drunk guy who, you know, has mm -hmm. like a, a passionate, like impulse murder, still had like the forethought to be like, I need to dispose of the corpse. And do it in I think you can never you never judge somebody when shock and adrenaline takes over because everyone is going to act different. And I imagine that you've killed someone. Nothing's going to sober you up faster. Yeah, man. You'd think the first instinct would be like, I'm going to get the fuck out of here and just like leave the body and run. But instead, he's like, no, I'm going to tie his hands and feet with shoelaces. I'm going to weigh the body down with yes. stones. I'm going to roll him into the Hudson River. It seems a bit more premeditated to me. Maybe. I don't see it that way. I see like we all do crazy things in shock when we've had like a very moment when your adrenaline is really pouring. And like I've never been in this situation. You've yeah, never been in this situation. So I can't, I'm not going to say that it seems premeditated because I, I genuinely don't think it was. Because after this, so he had these bloodstained cigarettes. He, his first place that he went to was Burroughs' apartment because he looked up to Bill. Bill flushed this, these bloodstained cigarettes down he the smoked, toilet. He smoked them first though. <laughs> he did. He smoked the cigarettes because, yeah, he's a junkie. Yeah, you know <laughs> Yeah. But he did advise um, Lucian. He was like, you're going to have to lawyer up. You're going to go to jail. He said that Lucian appeared to be in a daze. And so, like, Lucian went next to the but apartment of Edie Parker, where Perak was living. One uh, quick aside here. So Burroughs advised him to lawyer up. So he was like, you should have your mom get you a lawyer. But he also said you should use the honor slaying as your defense, ah, okay. which is uh, self-defense against a, a, an act of homosexual aggression. So it's an honor slaying. That existed slaying. back then. Yeah. That was, that was wow. Well, so, that just shows you how different attitudes well, were. Definitely. I mean, it was the 1950s. And so, or 1940s. It was 1944. So, I mean, it's a completely different attitude towards it. But I think Burroughs was just like, at this point, this is what you have to do. You know, which he's a genius for yeah. being up at five a.m. <laughs> and say, thinking of that. It's diabolical. I'm just like Lucian, yeah. you're fucked, mate. You're going to jail. <laughs> so yeah, the next thing he goes to Edie Parker's apartment, and Jack lived with Edie at this time, right? Jack lived with Edie, but Edie was also living with a, a woman called Joan Volner, who we were talking about. Joan wouldn't let Lucian stay because he had his his 
um, David's like broken bloody glasses and he you know was telling them a story and Joan got freaked out she was like you cannot stay here so Kerouac went off with Lucian they spent the day getting sauced they hid the glasses and they were just that but eventually Carl knew there was the nowhere evidence. to turn and he went to the police that night the police didn't believe him at first because he's this young kind of waifish college boy like kind of clean cutish coming in they just did not believe his story and then the coast guard of course fished up the uh, the dead nonce from his and watery grave they had no choice to so he, believe him so lucian I, I was reading about this and i was like why would he go to the police like why would you why not just you know not not even address what happened but then again i think obviously they probably would have tied it to him because you know he was part of their circle last so, scene with him yeah as well yeah last scene at the bars he would have known that so lucian definitely felt remorse and that's when, when he went to uh, kerouac's apartment or Edie parker's apartment he was freaking out because he thought he was going to get convicted and get the chair and so uh he woke up kerouac and he was just like i dispose of the old man tonight and kerouac's first words were why'd you go and do that <laughs> That's very typical Jack, isn't it? What'd you do that? Oh, why'd you go do that? Yeah, why? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so he, after going out drinking, seeing the movies and going to the bars and stuff like that, he freaked out and decided to turn himself into the police. So during this, um, Kerouac and Burroughs, they were arrested as material witnesses. Burroughs is sitting on a fortune, he's bailed out instantly. It took a yeah. bit longer for Kerouac because, you know, he's working class, he's got no family money. Um, but Edie eventually ponied up the cash for him. Edie at the time said of this murder, all of our lives had, ch our lives had changed drastically, all because of Dave, who Lucian had tried to avoid just as we all did. Yeah, um, Kerouac's father refused to post the $100 bond to bail out his son. Kerouac's father <laughs> is as nasty as how Jack Kerouac ended in his final days. Kerouac is not from good stock. Yeah. I'm just going to put it like that. So Lucian appeared in court on August 24th, 1944, and he was indicted for second-degree murder. He claimed self-defense and pleaded guilty to second-degree manslaughter, and his plea was as accepted. The assistant district attorney believed that Carr, he had not intended to kill Camera, a homosexual, but that Camera, for more than five years, had persisted in making advances to Carr, which always were repulsed. Camera's persistence had made young car emotionally unstable and this is what i like in her testimony mrs car so this is a uh, lucian's mother described camera as a vertebra a vertebral iago who had corrupted her son purely for the love of evil <laughs> isn't that a great quote uh, saying that in court about your son uh here's love a it. here's a uh or a picture here of um the actual news article you can see a young Lucian Carr there. The so honor slayer cut. faces trial in second degree. Ooh, look at that advert for Pedro's imported rum. I would <laughs> like some of that. Some of that right now. So he ended up serving two years in the Elmira Reformatory. Carrick uh, and Burroughs collaborated on a book, a brilliant book. I highly suggest anyone reads this. You'll read it in an afternoon on the events called And the Hippos Are Boiled in Their Tanks. This went unreleased in their lifetimes. And Kerouac also based his book, The Town and the City, a very good Kerouac book, on this murder. So, so that book was about the murder of Lucian, of uh, David Kamer? It's told from 
Kerouac's side and Burroughs' side, and then they come together for certain portions of the book. You know, I've never read that one. I should check that out. Um, what's interesting about this, though, so the killing of Kamerer was uh, kind of was influential to the uh, the beginning of the beat movement. I of mean, course. Yeah. Yes. I mean, so I read that there were like three primary forces that influenced the beat movement. You know, the birth, which was uh, Lucian Carr and his whole new vision concept. I mean, yes, he introduced those guys to like all the famous po poets at the time. And, uh, had you know, he, he laid the foundation of like voice, method, and influence. And the next part was the killing of Kamer, which created the impetus to go by, uh, you know, getting the, the B poets to kind of, because Kamer was gone. I, uh, I mean, Lucian Carp was gone for two years. So now it's yeah. like the, the B poets were kind of, because Lucian Carr was they kind of like a teacher. He was kind of like were... their teacher. I mean, he was such a, an influential figure in their life. I think after this point, they were like, well, now we're kind of on our own. And then the third part was uh, the arrival of Neil Cassidy. Who is another, uh, you know, famous literary what a figure character. at that time? You know, yeah. Well, I mean, it did definitely fracture them because Lucian was the core of the group, and I mean, Ginsburg, his first editions of Howl were dedicated to Lucian. Yeah. But when Lucian came out of like, he, you know, he definitely grew up fast in the reformatory. He he told Ginsburg, "Take the dedication out for me. I kind of want to be forgotten." And he got married. And this is when he became probably the most successful writer out of all of them because he became the, the night news editor of the United Press, and he kept that job for forty-eight years. And this show, uh, this is a great picture of him. It's my favorite picture of Lucian Carr here. Yeah, I like this of, one too. Uh, yeah, but this is when he's like a news guy. He's like a newsman here. But look mm. at this picture of him with like <laughs> the hair and the mustache. And so, yeah, when he... A um, young whippersnapper. So after the prison term, he went to go work for uh, UPI, uh, where he was initially hired as a copy boy, but then he eventually became a night news editor and then went on to head the general news desk until he retired in 1993. And uh, in a letter that Ginsburg wrote to Carr, he said, um, you know, Bill sends his love and says you should shave your mustache. It's awful. I mean, having a mustache like that to keep oneself from being pretty is like knocking out a couple of teeth or sticking in a nose plug or some other barbarous self-mutilation. In fact, it's worse. It's a crime of self-desecration to try to make yourself ugly. To please a lot of jerks down at the UPI and be one of the boys is terrible. Jack and I agree on account of nobody's really watching anyway. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. This great letter. But he it's was very much a man of letters was Ginsburg. But it's almost like an act of defiance because because Carr was distancing himself from the beats poets. You know, he you know, he uh stopped his ambition of being like a literary writer. Like I don't he was supposed to he was trying to write a novel at that time and a book of poems, he stopped doing that. And became a you know, he newspaper did. editor and a, and a news writer. And he also distanced himself from the beats in public. I mean, he would still, you know, exchange letters and oh, things like that. Oh, he would like still that. be friends with them, but he never talked about the crime publicly, ever. No. And, and he asked for his name to be removed from uh, Howell. He asked Kerouac yes. to change the title of his poem from Old Lucian Midnight to Old Angel Midnight. Because mm -hmm. he didn't want to be associated. And so he kind of willingly faded into the background as like a, you know, as a second string character in Kerouac's novels, cloaked by pseudonyms. You know, so, yeah, I mean, because we'll never actually know what prompted him that night to kill, like, uh, to kill David. You could say it was, like, a repulsion, 
against maybe his own homosexual desires or against Dave's sexual desires. Years of like, abuse. Years you know? of abuse. I mean, yeah, none of these beat boys were like strangers to playing hide the salami. So you just don't know. I've got a good quote here where it says, like the rest of the university world, we are completely mystified at what happened. So this is from the Columbia University student newspaper. Obviously, this is big news for them. There is a complexity to the background of the case that will defy ordinary police and legal investigations. The search for a motive will dig deep into the more hidden areas of the intellectual world. You know, it's interesting. On uh, So the obituary upon Carr's death has sort of been when he died. In like... He died 2005. 2005. And he, died, he had bone cancer. He died at the age of 79. Um they noted on the killing by Carr of Kamer, this is in The Guardian, central to Carr's defense was that he was not gay and that Kamer was an obsessive stalker, threatened sexual violence. And so it was an honor killing. So once the story of a predatory homosexual was presented in court, Carr became a victim and the murder was framed as an honor killing. And there was no one in court to question the story or offer any kind of different version of the relationship. Much of the story, however, is doubtful. And perhaps now with Carr's death, it may be possible to disentangle the strands of insu insinuation, legal spin, and lies. There's no independent proof. This is from The Guardian, that Kamer was a predatory stalker. There's only Carr's words for the pursuit from St. Louis to New York. And there's persuasive evidence that Kamer himself was not gay. Carr enjoyed his ability to manipulate the older man and got him to write essays for his classes in New York's Columbia University. A friend remembers Kamer slamming the door of his apartment in Carr's face and telling him to get lost. So this is like evidence that came out later. And there's also evidence to suggest that Carr had been a troubled and unstable young man who did try to commit suicide at one point. And while the, you know, um, uh, he told a, psych a psychiatrist that uh, his suicide was a performance and it was a work of art. In New York, Carr gave Ginsburg, who had been raised respectably in New Jersey, where his father was a teacher, the new language of eroticism and danger. And so uh, Ginsburg wrote in his journal the key terms of the Carr language as fruit, phallus, clitoris, feces, fetus, womb, and rimbaud. So it's interesting to, I mean, there's a different take on it. And there's been like, you know, other I people. I kind of think that's a bit all bullshit to be honest though because William S. Burroughs and Jack Kerouac who were there and who writing and the hippo was boiled in the tanks they talk about and Celine the was, you know yeah Celine they all talk about well. how David hounded him for 10 years you don't move and it wasn't just like oh he'd moved from St. Louis to New York he moved to St. Louis to Chicago and he lived in Texas as well and David followed him all around that and you can see why he would act out and I think him being literary and, you know, calling people fruits or whatever, that's just like when you're 20, that's like your attitude. Well, I think not? it's part of being rebellious and, you know, of going course. against the status quo. But I think part of it, too, is like this sort of revisionist history. It's like I think they're looking back on this, like, incredibly homophobic defense that he used in court, the honor killing. You know, that's something I think The Guardian now, if you look at it now, it's like, yeah, that's extremely homophobic. And no one could even say that. But then, so I think the Guardian is trying to ju just, you know, basically change say that, his, yeah. Change, change the attitude of it. But I mean, at the end of the day, you can't change the facts. If he's killed this man because this man is giving him unwanted homosexual attention for over 10 years, then that's the facts. Well, I, I would like to know what their persuasive evidence that Kamer wasn't gay. 
That's what I would like to know. I would, yeah, because what you, it's like William S. Burroughs. He was sticking his dick in Joan Volmer, but he was also sticking his dick in like all these Mexican rent boys. <laughs> Which kind of leads us into <laughs> our next topic here. Yes, it um, does. Lovely. The second <laughs> death of the Beat Generation. So this, this involves, uh, yeah, uh, Burroughs Bur- William Burroughs' common-law wife, Joan Volmer. In a twist, in a twist of fate game. So Joan Vollmer is one of the more well-known ladies associated with the Beat Generation. Although she was never published in her lifetime, like, say, Carolyn Cassidy or Edie Parker or Jan Kerouac, uh, Joan was known as being fiercely intelligent and well-read, traits that she shared with her husband, William S. Burroughs. He's shown a little picture there. There she is in There's a picture of Joan Vollmer. Yeah. So um, you've got a clip to play by the poet Herbert Hunke, who, to me, is my f- now I'm older, is my favorite member of the Beats. His his poetry is outworldly good. Do I sound like a dick? His poetry. Did you have particular uh, affection for Joan Burroughs? Yes, I did. I liked her very much. No. Uh... Nothing involved, except that I I did admire her. I spent many hours with her, which were very pleasant and very interesting. She was, my idea, of a very brilliant woman. Uh, She was very independent of the rest of mankind. And I think I liked her mostly for that. She was her own person, and she didn't hesitate to speak her feelings, although she was never adamant. I mean, she wasn't a a ranter and a raver, Mm -hmm. but she uh, could voice her objections very effectively. I like how uh, she was independent from mankind. That's a great quote. He is is a lovely, got a wonderful turn of phrase. I really like Herbert. So Joan was born to a well-to-do, a lot of the beats came from well-to-do families in um. Ludenville, New York, on February 4th, 1923. She attended Barnard College. Um, she met Edie Parker, who had become her flatmate, at the famous West End Bar, where all the cool cats are hanging out, taking Benzedrine, drinking. Oh, yeah, Edie's a looker. Yeah, Edie's much more attractive than Joan. Uh, yeah, although this is not a flattering picture of Edie. No. But, like, Jack Kerouac loved Edie. Um, Joan Fulmer. So together they lived in a series of like Upper West Side apartments. These West Side apartments, they were frequented by like hustlers, alcoholics, speed freaks, winos, grifters, all taking uppers and downers. There'd be handfuls of like beauties. Yeah, prostitutes, poets, punks, college students. They were all like looking for a place to like tune in and turn on. Totally cool scene. And they were at the epicenter of it, these two ladies. So Joan at the time, she was married to a military man. She had a young child who was also living in this apartment. But when her husband came back from the war, he was so appalled at this like laissez faire lifestyle that he divorced her. He just came back and was like, fuck this. I am not having this. And Joan was like, fuck you too. Joan was like very well known. She would take like four or five hour long baths, but you could go and sit in there with her. She'd be just keep topping up the water. When it began to cool, she would drink gin. She would read Rambo in the bath and she'd just be off her nut on Benzedrine. <laughs> I've got she a great quote She to be around. I mean, she was though. She was just a cool chick. 
So from by all accounts, so the writer James Elroy, who I also love, he's got a great passage in one of his books about how he describes what benzedrine inhalers are. Do you know what benzedrine is? Yeah, benzedrine, it's an upper, right? Yeah, it's basically it? speed. Yeah, it's speed, more or less. So the way they were back then in like the 30s, it, right? I've, well, that's not how they took it. <laughs> I think I think it got outlawed. I tried to look, but I think it got outlawed in the late 60s. So they were, this is James Elroy. They were over-the-counter decongestant products encased in little plastic tubes. The tubes held a wad of cotton soaked in a substance called prophehexadrine. Prophehexadrine. You were supposed to stick the tube in your nose and take a few sniffs. You weren't supposed to swallow the wads and fly on righteous 10-hour speed highs. <laughs> so Benzedrine... they would just rip it out and just eat the whole wad of uh, Well, most people would put it in tea or coffee. James Elroy, because he was so addicted to it back then, he would eat it. The Benzedrine inhalers are legal. They cost 69 cents. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you could also, you also had to buy them in boxes. So I think you'd buy 10 of them at a time. And there you go. That's you flying high for a long time. It's interesting how she had a relationship with Burroughs, who was addicted to heroin. Meanwhile, and she's, she's addicted speed. to Benzedrine, which you think are like completely, you know, on opposite levels here. <laughs> yeah. Opposite I'm just playing fields. To get into their relationship. Yeah. Because in 1946, Allen Ginsberg introduced the pair because he was convinced that Joan was the double of William, that they were two halves of the same coin. Their relationship was fiery and passionate from the start. They they really respected each other. They loved each other, but it was a very tumultuous relationship. So would you say that Burroughs was bisexual then? I think at this point, Burroughs was hiding his sexuality. I think he... He'd had a lot of homosexual affairs up until this point, but I do think he loved Joan. I think Joan very much was a similar character to him. But he's also, there comes to a point where he's so out of it on junk, he can't have sex. And they didn't yeah. have sex for a lot, for the majority of their relationship. So I think it was a very much like a mutual respect and understanding type of love. Yeah, I think it was probably, it was probably not really physical as much as it was mental. Yeah, I think he also struggled probably to get it up because it wasn't it wasn't a schlong. That's what William S. Burroughs wants. He wants your schlong. So William was born, like I said before, he was born in St. Louis in 1923, and he was the heir of a family fortune. So his grandfather had invented the Burroughs adding machine. I had to look up what this looked like. So they're like one of those, they're like a big old timey typewriter looking things. So like imagine the 1920s in a smoky room and there's an accountant with like arm cuffs on and he's got a visor and he's got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and he's doing the accounts on like a typewriter. That's a Burroughs adding machine. I think I, think I mentioned to you off air, but my parents had one of those. Did, I'm, I'm very I remember jealous. being perplexed by it because it was like this huge thing. And I'm like, why don't you just have a calculator? Because that, that thing is massive and it's heavy. But yeah, I don't know whatever happened to it. I'm, I think we got rid of it before we moved to South Africa. But I remember as a kid, I was like, what the fuck is this thing? Just like a yes. big, massive metal calculator. So this was in the days before the calculator was invented. Before we yeah. all had calculators in our pockets. Didn't you love that in school when people were like, you need to learn maths because uh, you won't always have a calculator in your pocket. <laughs> It's like, yeah. Look, you maths teacher, Mr. Jones. Anyways, so Burroughs had a really comfortable life, a very comfortable life. He attended, yeah, I mean, he went to me. Harvard. 
Yeah, he he did his postgrad in Colombia. Uh, he went to study medicine in Vienna. This is this shows you how well off he was. So he enlisted to fight in World War II. He was really into it, but he found out he wouldn't become an officer. So his mother basically paid for him to be honorably discharged, claiming that he had mental health problems when he didn't. He just did it. He was like, I want to be an officer. I don't want to be infantry. I want to be an officer. I think his family got him out of many situations. Oh, boy, did money. they. <laughs> <laughs> so in this time, um, he held a few other jobs. Never seriously. He had a well-known summer where he spent being an exterminator. If you've ever read a Naked Lunch, you know all about yeah. that. Uh, that had a profound impact on him. And he was writing. He's always been writing, but in the early 1940s, him and his friend David Kamer, they moved to 1940s New York. And it wasn't long while he was there that he developed a morphine addiction. Not surprising. Yeah, not surprising. (laughs) Which which proved to be like a major inspiration to his work. Of course. His life was deeply affected by drugs, and he spent time being a junkie in London, Paris, Mexico, and Tangier. And he was searching for a high or for a cure to some extent. It was always like swings and roundabouts with him. And I think it's 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 definitely very enabling when you have a parents your your parents' vast fortune that can just you know pay for you to go around the world and do drugs. Yes. You know, <laughs> believe very, like, me, charm life. I'm very jealous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Me too. It's very like Crowley in a way because Crowley came from a very rich family and they basically paid for him to have a more morphine and heroin addiction you, can, you don't have to work you can be a writer <laughs> you just do, you do uh, heroin you and write and go to cool cities and mm. have your rent paid yeah no that's it's the life i've always wanted <laughs> <laughs> so in spring of 46 burroughs was arrested he'd forged a narcotics prescription and as part of his plea deal he had to return to his mummy and daddy in saint louis and it was at this time that Joan suffered a full-on, complete nervous breakdown. It could be because her lover, um, whom she was completely and utterly devoted to Burroughs at this point, so devoted that Ginsburg had actually been telling Bill that sh- he should break it off with her because she is just obsessed with you. But I actually think her breakdown was caused from the years she'd spent about six years now taking vast, vast quantities of pharmaceutical speed. Yeah. So she was imprisoned in Bellevue, notorious Bellevue. She's been a great mom. (laughs) Get into what happened with her children later. (laughs) And then upon hearing the news, Burroughs, for like everything you can say about him, he rushed back to New York. He released her, he paid for her to come out. And from that point onwards, they were never apart again. And they didn't formally marry, but Joan, common on that law. day, just, yeah, were common law, and she referred to herself as Mrs. William Burroughs until her dying day. So she was his wife, in a way. Yeah, no, I think they were common law married. So because of all their troubles with drugs, she's high on speed, he's high on smack, they began moving around the country. They first went to Texas, followed by New Orleans. While in New Orleans, Burroughs was busted for possession. The police searched his home, and while well, they had arrested him, and they found a letter to Ginsburg where they had Burroughs was implying that they might be smuggling illegal substances across state lines. Uh-oh. So this is this has now led to the worst criminal charges of his life. There's a very good chance that he was going to be sent to Louisiana's infamous Angolia State Prison, which is not a good prison to go to. 
Yeah, especially at that time, you'd probably be going away for, oh, no. for life. Forevers. Yeah. So they decided between them, they were like, fuck it. What, are they, what can we do? Where did the outlaw laws go? So they went to Mexico. Mexico they, City. Me- Mexico City, their final destination. They arrived there in 1949. But sadly, they were not to have a good time in Mexico City. It was cursed to them from the very beginning. Yeah, Vollmer was very unhappy in Mexico City, mainly because Benzedrine was unavailable. And so, yeah, and um, Burroughs was also detoxing. They'd, they were bitter and resentful towards each other by this point. Burroughs, because he had detoxed off the heroin, hello! His libido is back, isn't it? <laughs> but he's not wanting to shag his wife. No. He's wanting to shag all the street rat rent boys and all the prostitutes that are basically, they cost him nothing. It was like two pesos to shag these boys back then. And he's a rich man. So yeah, he indulged. So, I mean, why not? And now he can get it up. So <laughs> No, and she knew all about it too. And she would she would write in letters to Ginsburg about like, oh, Bur- William's really happy because he's got his rent boys. I'm less happy. But that's what, because she was clean of Benzedrine too. But as Burroughs was like philandering around on her, she felt abandoned, alone, and she turned to uh, booze for comfort. Like yeah, she, Taylor's oldest time, isn't it? She wrote to Ginsburg that she was drunk from 8 a.m. on, and she said, Bill is fine in himself, and so are we jointly. The boys are lovely, easy and cheap, pe- pesos, 40 cents for a rent boy, but my patience is infinite. Oh. Yeah, so I mean, she she loved him. She definitely stuck with him, but you could tell that uh, she sounds she's, unhappy. Yeah, she, she sounds very unhappy at this point. And I guess, like even physically, like uh, the alcohol and the drug addictions aged her noticeably. Her face was swollen, and she even mm. limped due to a recent bout of polio. So I guess she no, had, like, I a didn't limp. know that. Yeah. I didn't know she didn't contracted the polio in Mexico. Yeah. There were worse things you could contract in Mexico. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. Bill did. <laughs> I'm sure Bill contracted a few things. So, you know, she's at home sloppy drunk. So Bill would stay away for days and nights because they would just fight. Sometimes these fights would turn physical. He writes about it in one of his books. Uh, I think it's Queer where he talks about how he slaps her. So friends was visit. Carrick and Ginsburg, they came down to like, and they all had a big road trip together. Uh, but the like the joy of these people coming to see them, the, it never lasted long, and the couple was just so miserable. Although yeah, they had no idea where this misery was going to take them. Well, even Herbert Hunky came down and stayed with them, and uh, he was struck by Burroughs' just complete indifference to Joan. He said I love that he was, yeah, he was annoyed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, he was just annoyed by her. And I guess like there is a petition for divorce that was initiated in Mexico in 1950 by Burroughs or Volmer or both of them, but just. To, I mean, they're never really never went materialized. Anywhere. Yeah. Well, I bet they wish they did get divorced because on September the 6th, 1951, the couple had gone out drinking for the night, which is nothing out of the ordinary for them. They went out drinking every night. So they ended up at the apartment above the bar that they had been drinking in. And there was a few other people in this room. William S. Burroughs is a lifelong avid gun nut. He's been shooting guns. Like he probably came out the womb shooting a gun. He loves guns. He has a gun collection. He had a, he would shoot guns in the house in front of the kids in Mexico. Wow. So he pulled out his trusty pistol, which he always carried on him, and he started waving it around drunk, drunkenly. And he said to Joan in his very slow Missouri drawl, it's time for our William Tell Act. <laughs> you can right. see where this is going. 
You can see all this is going, yes? Although there is like no known knowledge that this was their actual party trick. No one knows if they'd ever played this before. Joan was game for it. She would never turn down fun. So she was just as drunk as Bill. She grabbed an empty highball glass. She placed it on top of her head. Don't forget that both were in the depths of withdrawal and depression and drink. And the gun was and they were completely as loaded as they were. Yeah. So, yeah. Burroughs took aim and he fired just once. The bullet struck Joan in her forehead and she died instantly. Yeah. And you know, the couple's four-year-old son, William Burroughs Jr., was in the room when his mother was shot. Which could also be one of the reasons why William S. Burroughs Jr. died very young, too. It's definitely probably tales. Yeah, some trauma probably this. occurred there. Um, so, so Burroughs claimed that he had like dropped the gun and it misfired, and he only spent 13 13- days days in jail in mexican jail before his brother traveled down and bailed him out and they basically fled the country well prior to that though so he he had this whole william tell story people saw it there were there were witnesses there but his uh, mexican attorney bernabe Gerardo was like yeah maybe drop that story let's not go the william tell route and instead he was saying that the gun he dropped the gun and it misfired and then it accidentally happened. He didn't even know. Like, he hadn't touched that gun in, like, months. And so he didn't even know it was loaded, and he accidentally dropped it. And it, you know, it, it went off, and it slipped, and it misfired, and it hit Volmer. This is what Gerardo, his lawyer, was saying. And that so, is so not the truth. There no, is not a definitely gun that not. Bill is not shooting. He was, he was shooting his guns daily. And there were, the and there were witnesses there that saw what happened. And so that's the thing. He um, he was claiming that was like, you know, the, the carriage slipped and it misfired. And so he got charged with criminal negligence, which carried like a maximum sentence of five years. And so for a year, while, you know, they're trying to sort this out, he reported every Monday morning to the jail in Mexico City, which must have been an awful, abysmal place. Um, and his lawyer worked to resolve the case. However, his lawyer ended up fleeing to Brazil after shooting a youth who had actually, who damaged his Cadillac. So he took off to Brazil, <laughs> and so Burroughs was like, yeah, fuck this. And they just left and went back to the U.S. Like, his brother came down, you know, they get some money, it. and they just took off, and they went to Louisiana, and where um, where he had actually previously had that narcotic, nar- uh, narcotic charge against him, but apparently, I guess... Um, oh, that got forgotten about. Yeah, that was forgotten about. some monies. So the Mexican court, they convicted him in abs- uh, absentia. Absentia, and he, yeah. And he received only a two-year suspended sentence. Because <laughs> he would eventually go back to Mexico as well. So the two children were taken back to the States as well, and they were split up. They went to the two different grandparents. Joan's daughter took on her mother's last name, and she lived a relatively normal life. But their son... William S. Burroughs Jr., who also went on to become a writer. He died of alcoholism at the age of 33. Wow. 33! See, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because, so you're, if you were a kid, who would you want to go to? The super wealthy parents or just like the normal parents? It's a tough choice. See, I kind of would want to go to the normal parents because the super wealthy parents are still going to send you money. But if you have to live with like the kind of like, you know, genteel rich elite, you're going to have to do all that kind of boring bullshit where you eat with, eat with proper silver. But at least if he was the normal folk, he can like 
Duke well, apparently it didn't, it, it didn't work <laughs> out too well yeah. for Bill Jr. over here. So I read not. that uh, Volmer was actually buried in Mexico City, which is kind of sad by in a way. It is next to strangers by herself. Why? Why wouldn't the? Why wouldn't he pay for her to be to come back to? You know, where are they from? St. Louis. I think it was Ludenville. No, yeah, probably he just didn't care. And like, I don't know. I know it costs a lot of money to transport bodies, but I can't even imagine the complexities of taking a body from Mexico City and bringing it into the states. Yeah, that's weird. So. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's maybe that's why she's buried there. Maybe she maybe she really felt attached to Mexico or something. So now the reactions to Volmer's death is oh, yeah, uh, is rather interesting. Too. Yeah, so it, people were kind of split on it. Like Ginsburg and Lucian Carr defended Burroughs, and they believe that Volmer may have encouraged the whole William Tell incident, stating that she was she seemed kind of suicidal when they visited her in 1951. I can imagine that. I can imagine she. Maybe she didn't suggest it, but just simply by the fact she was like, okay, and she put a glass on her head, she's going along with it, isn't she? Well, I imagine they must have been like a very, you know, uh, volatile vol- volatile couple that uh, that fought and drank heavily and were passionate. And so I'm assuming that this probably was like, she might have dared him to do it. Like he might so have I joked have- about it and she dared him to do it. Well, Burroughs, he had subconscious fears that he did actually want to kill Joan because he wrote in a letter to Ginsburg. This is in 1954. I may yet attempt a story or some account of Joan's death. I think I am afraid. Not exactly to discover unconscious intent. It's more complex, more basic, and more horrible, as if the brain drew the bullet towards it. It's very telling. I mean, it's interesting. It is interesting. You know- and like... Oh, yeah, I bet you're going to say the same thing I'm about to say. The intro to queer? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. what I'm going to talk about. So this is in his introduction to his book, Queer, which is probably my favorite book by him. Yeah, it's a great he's, book. If you're going to read a Burroughs book. book, it's, well, Naked Lunch obviously is famous, but Queer, I think, is one of his best works. Queer and Junkie are my two favorite works by him. I like the soft machine too. So he writes in the introduction to his book, I am forced to the appalling conclusion that I would never have become a writer but for Joan's death. Volumer's death, in Burroughs' view, brought me in contact with the invader, the ugly spirit, and maneuvered me into a lifelong struggle in which I had no choice except to write my way out. Yeah. The invader. So I kind of look at that two ways, though, because... Burroughs had been writing for years before he killed Joan, but I certainly, I definitely think he was racked with guilt over it. I think he came to kind of see like his writing as a way to escape the ugly spirit, as he called it, that kind of took over him. And if he wrote every day, he could kind of atone for what had happened. Although like Joan had no chance for an epiphany, did she? She's dead. He definitely was racked with guilt. I mean, you can see in the letter they wrote to Ginsburg. I mean, I think of he. Uh, I think he thought he might have actually. I mean, it, it it makes sense that he might have actually thought like about killing her frequently. I mean, this could have been you know like when you're drunk, you lose your inhibitions. You know, this who could doesn't have... as well? When you're in an unhappy relationship, you yeah. do think, "I wish you were dead," or you you think about it. it's natural. And they had a volatile relationship, so I mean, I I think, and I bet I I'm sure he felt after this happened whether was an accident or not um he he was definitely racked with guilt about it he felt remorse 
So Allen Ginsberg also wrote of her. He wrote of, in his dream record, June 8th, 1955. He said, Joan, what kind of knowledge have the dead? Can you still love your mortal acquaintances? What do you remember of us? So yeah. she's very well remembered. Another writer called Brenda Knight, who wrote a book called The Woman of the Beat Generations, she says that Joan is Joan's very similar to Lucian Carr in this way. She's the whetstone against which the main beat writers, Alan, Jack, and Bill, sharpen their intellect. Wildly considered one of the most perceptive people in the group, her strong mind and independent nature help bulldoze the beats towards new sensibility. And Burroughs himself described her in glowing terms, called her a very extraordinary woman. She was the smartest person around, and she had immediate insight into anyone's character. Just one look, and she knew. So, I mean, so, he definitely respected her. There's some mutual admiration there. but Oh, of course. I think even though it ended badly for them, they still wouldn't have been together if there wasn't a love there. Yeah, I wouldn't say it was a healthy relationship. Oh, so, no. <laughs> so uh, what's interesting is, um, if you know, people obviously you do your own research, read these books. I think it's great. Um, but there are two movies that came out relatively recently, the past couple of decades, um, about these incidents. One is a 2013 film called Kill Your Darlings uh, about the Lucian Carr, um, David uh, Kamer murders. Daniel Radcliffe plays Ginsburg. Dane DeHaan plays Lucian Carr. Dane DeHaan was, I think he was in like the second Spider-Man movie. He played like the Green Goblin's son. Okay. Um, oh, and, him. Right, yes. He looks actually a lot like Lucian Carr. And Michael C. Hall, Dexter, plays Kamerer, which... Is a perfect, perfect. casting. That's perfect, That's perfect casting. casting. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, and then there's also the movie uh, Beat, which came out in 2000, which is a biographical account of the relationship. I between, really like this movie. Yeah, I've Joan Vollmer and William Burroughs. And Courtney Love plays Joan Vollmer. Uh, and who she's plays, great. Who plays Bur- oh, Kiefer Sutherland plays Burroughs. He, and he's great. The casting in that film is also really, really good. And that focuses on when... Um, Kerouac and Ginsburg came down to Mexico to spend time with them as well. It's good. I, I recommend that film. I actually I've haven't seen, seen Beat. Yeah, I haven't seen Beat. I've seen uh, yeah, the other one before, which it, is yeah. good. But um, but yeah, two very interesting um, uh, films. A very interesting period of the Beat generation a lot of people don't really know about. Um, coming full circle, though, Ferlinghetti. That's uh, how, how it all started. Um, you know, he'll be missed. This guy, um, you know, he definitely... You know, influenced the beat the beat movement. He paved I think, the way. Yeah, he like propagated the beat movement. I think without him, you know, without him publishing Howl and things like this, I don't think as many people would ever have known about it. I mean, I, I don't taking think a they... chance on it. You know, it was obviously Ginsburg who pushed that all, but I d- I don't think any of them would have ever found the level. They would not have been a literary movement because I don't think there's been a literary movement since the Beats, like to that extent and without yeah, Lawrence mean, that wouldn't have happened I mean he he definitely created the nucleus of it all you know and uh, surrounding my city lights and publishing this work fighting against censorship uh, in particular I read a pretty interesting um quote that he that it was in in court when he was uh, facing the obscenity charges the people of the state of California versus Lawrence Ferlinghetti he made a very profound case against censorship and um, he said it's not the poet but what he observes, which is revealed, is obscene. The great obscene wasters of hell are the sad waste of the mechanized world lost among atom bombs and insane nationalism. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very profound, yeah. So on that note, I tip my glass to you, Lawrence Ferlinghetti. 
Rest yes, in a peace. hero. A true hero. Uh, people of Sick and Wrong, episode 780. We have some news stories coming up next. We have some phone calls a little later in the show. But first, here's a word about the Sick and Wrong Patreon page. Brothers and sisters, this is the Atheist Preacher. And I'm here today to tell you about the Sick and Wrong Patreon. Patreon.com slash Sick and Wrong. As we all know, money is the root of all evil. So what better way to cleanse your soul than by kicking some into the plate for the Sick and Wrong Patreon? Not only do you get to enjoy all the original sins, like extra news stories, phone calls, and outtakes, you also get to feel self-righteous knowing you've helped this Jew and this Jezebel on their path to hell. Hallelujah! So the first story we have here is truly horrific. This is a horrifying tale. It's very grisly. Um, Oklahoma murder suspect confesses to killing neighbor and cooking her heart. This is like some Temple of Doom type shit. The cannibal next door. Gnarly. It happened. I love the. I love the name of this Oklahoma town. Chickasha. 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 I like it. I like it. Like rolls off the tongue. It's better than like mm-hmm. fucking English towns. Cocker mouth. Do you guys have you guys have the word cock in almost like I don't know half your cities? Yeah, what do you there a place in the UK called Shitterton as well? <laughs> Shitterton. <laughs> I, I mentioned this on the uh, on Patreon, but uh, Warwick Davis sent me this map of just like the best names for English cities. I have like all the names now. Yeah, slap bottom cocking. Happy Bottom, Golden Happy Balls. Boy. Golden Balls is a roundabout. Um, Spankers Hill Wood, uh, Tickle Cock Bridge. You guys have the word cock in like half the cities in England. I don't get I've got, it. Yeah, but you know that's because it's it's the it's the river. It's the name of the little river or lake. Where it's it Cock Lake. Cock, cock Lake. You guys yeah, just cock love cock. Cossy, yeah, we're obsessed with it, mate. The sausage. <laughs> I think a lot, of a, a lot of American uh, cities are named after like Native American names, like Chickasha. Chickasha. Um, triple murder suspect Lawrence Paul Anderson um, wept Tuesday at his first court appearance. Uh, that includes, it's a case that includes evidence of cannibalism. Oh, God, he said during the video arraignment. Oh, God. And he wept. He wiped away tears with his heavily bandaged right hand. And uh, he started crying after being charged formally with murder. I don't think this guy has much of a reason to cry. <laughs> he's a pretty awful person. Yeah. Um, he's obviously not having a good time in his jail cell. Yeah, well, I don't know if he's right in the head. 42 years old, Anderson. I, I like his name. Is, uh, I was thinking P.T. Anderson, but it's Lawrence Paul Anderson. Um, faces three counts of first-degree murder, one count of assault and battery, the deadly weapon, and one count of maiming. Maiming. Um, Judge Regina Lowe denied his bail, which uh, Lawrence actually agreed with. He said, I don't want no bail, Your Honor. I don't want no bail. So I think he know- uh, <laughs> I don't think he even wants I to get out of no this point. I don't want no bail. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he's accused of killing his uncle, Leon Pye, 67 years old, attacking his aunt, Delcy Pye. That last uh, name is Pye. P-Y-E. 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 Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm assuming it's Pye. It's very unfortunate. Mr. Pye. Mr. Pye. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I like her, her name, Delcy. Delcy Pye. 
Delcy, yeah. Delcy Pye. Del- so he, he killed his uncle, attacked his aunt, and then he he's accused of killing their granddaughter. I don't even know how to say her name. Kios? Kios Yates? Four years old and a woman who lived across the street. So he just went on like a, a killing spree here. Sounds like it. Death and to pause. The woman that uh, was killed across the street is Andrea Lynn Blankenship, 41 years old. Uh, he was arrested at the Pie Home after police responded to a 911 call. <laughs> the pie home. There's a there's a there's a restaurant here in Los Feliz called House of Pies. Yeah, this House is- of Pies. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, and you it's know what the joke would be if they were like middle class and white? It would be like, our last name is Pie, but we actually don't like pies, do we, honey? Every party, <laughs> every party, they're doing that bit. They probably would. It's a very white joke. It's very white <laughs> yes. humor. Um, but these people are black, so I don't know if they would do it. But maybe. I don't know. Pies um, aren't really a thing over here. Meat pies are. But like mince pies. pies. Don't you guys have mince pies? We have both mince pies at Christmas, which are fruit, and then we have mince pies throughout the year, which are meat. But like, You, you guys don't have pies? like blueberry pies or lemon pies or anything apple, like that? Apple, apple and cherry pies are kind of like pretty much all you'll get. But we, we're big on crumbles here, like an apple crumble. Apple pie is very American. Apple, well, you stick your dicks in them. I've seen it. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a fan of pie. I don't like pie. But I'm not like a big dessert person, so. Mm-hmm. Um, the case has been called shocking, mainly because of the grisly details. But also, this repeat felon had been released from prison early in January because the governor of Oklahoma, Kevin Stitt, commuted his sentence. I'm telling you, Kate, these days, U.S. prisons have revolving doors and escalators. They do. Yes, today. Is this in your humble opinion? Well, why don't you pay (laughs) some more taxes to keep them all in then? I don't want to do that, so fuck it. Well, there you go. (laughs) Um, Anderson confessed and said he killed his neighbor first. That's what started the killing rampage. And then he cut her heart out. He then took the heart... Back to the pie home to cook with potatoes and feed to his family to, quote, release the demons. So, Right, you idiot. You make a pie with it, don't you? Yeah, you'd think he would do that. He's in a pie home. What else do you, you do in a pie You're in the pie, pie home. home. You're going to make them a heart pie. I wonder if you use spices. Like, the heart's like a weird, a weird a, meat. Well, that's what I was wondering about that. First of all... Is that how you release demons? Because I didn't know about this. Heart and potatoes. Kalima. Kalima. I I guess maybe. I get the logic there. But yeah, I'm trying to... So you'd probably have to maybe boil the heart to get the best kind of texture and flavor out of it. But then it would be like boiled meat, which is never nice. Like every time you go to Eastern Europe, I'm like, why do people eat boiled meat out here? Why is it a thing? Well, what about the potatoes? Mashed? Baked? What do we they got here? I am, I'm not eating that if they're mashed, mate. Yeah, but I'm I wonder what kind of potatoes you eat with a heart, you know? I, well, traditionally in Britain, it would be pie, mash, and lacquer. Liquor. Pie, mash, and liquor. And liquor, yeah. So That's police collected as evidence from the pie home one cooking pot with residue and one cooking pot with food inside. The question is, though, did they try the recipe? I hope they did. Well, the coroner will find it in their stomachs. A little bite. Um, Anderson cooked the heart at the pie home, and then he tried to make Delcy and Leon Pie 
eat the heart before he attacked them. So I wonder how that went down. Because at least he cooked it first. He didn't try to shove a raw heart in their face, you know? That's kind of him. I wonder if they were like, why is this meat gray? Where did you get this meat from? What is this meat? And he was probably like, oh, just just try it. <laughs> I just wonder how it. it was presented. Like, was he like Mola Ram? Just like, eat the heart. <laughs> you know, like holding it. I don't know. Or did he serve it to him on a plate? It's all about presentation. You know? I wish he'd made a TikTok of it um, so Gordon Ramsay could review it. You know, the thing is, too, I'm wondering, like, did he boil it? What, did, did it look like the organ? Or if he would have just, like, cut it up and mashed it in and made it look like, you know, you wouldn't. Yeah, then he could have told them, yeah, then he could have told them after they ate it, guess what you did? Did you like what you're yeah. eating? What would you think? <laughs> How did it taste? Do you like it? That's, That's your like neighbor's episode. heart. That's like that episode of It's So Sunny where he's like, you like what you're eating? You're eating the dog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then yeah. do the reveal. That's what you do. That's what you want, the reveal at the end. Um, Anderson listed the pie address as his home. But the weird thing is um, the family said that he only visited there since his release. He was actually staying in a nearby inn. They were surprised to see him just show up. And they had no prior knowledge that he was being released. And they never consented to him listing their address as his home. Which, which is kind of odd. Like, all of a sudden, you're like, why is my violently insane convict nephew standing outside my house right now? Like, and would you be a little saying, freaked out? Yeah, and why is he saying dinner's ready? Yeah, like, why is he holding a bleeding heart? Like, I just probably wouldn't let him in. Well, I think, was he not already in the house? Because he's cooked them all dinner. He's chopped up potatoes. Well, but initially... Well, yeah, yeah, but that's that's later. Initially, they had to have let him in the house because he had visited only a couple times, but he had been sentenced in 2017 to serve 20 years behind bars for probation violations on a number of drug drug uh, convictions and for several new crimes, um, like violent crimes. And so the government ended up commuting his sentence last year um, to, to nine years, but then he was released after serving just three years. That's craziness. Which is kind of odd. So the guy, you know, had numerous parole violations. Um, he was convicted of violent crimes. I mean, drug crimes, but also violent crimes. And then they still commuted his sentence after three years. And then he just shows up at his aunt and uncle's house. Like, would you let the guy in? This is why nobody should ever stay close to your family. Because it's always your family that murders you. Just, I would have been like, no, nah, I'm not having it. Gone inside my pie home, got on the pie phone, and I would have rang the donut-eating cops. <laughs> Did he see Yeah. Well, I mean, okay, I, you can be close to your non-murderous family members, you know? Maybe murder, your family yeah. members, yeah, maybe your family members that aren't convicted of violent crimes, that haven't been sentenced to 20 years in prison. Those people, I'd probably be like, yeah, you can come over for pie. You know, I, but uh, but this at guy the, at the way at their week it was just round after round of pie. <laughs> yeah, probably will. It's at the pie home. It's such um, a bad last name. So the uh, district attorney here is seizing on this moment to uh, to to um, go against the governor and rail against the governor in this whole uh, prison reform. He says, "When is enough enough? How many hearts need to be cut out and served with potatoes before we stop this?" Um, we've seen criminal justice reform in the state of Oklahoma now for several years. The goal that we have set in Oklahoma is to decrease the prison population with no thought for safety of the public. And so he doesn't feel that Oklahomans are safer for this change here. 
And uh, so I guess they, wow, they, 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 the uh, parole board revealed that they took up Anderson's application, who was sentenced to 20 years in prison. They took up his application for commutation January 2020 while it was considering 600 others. So they're going to commute the sentences of 600 other prisoners who were convicted of violent crimes. But out those 600, though, how many people are going to go and slaughter pies? I don't know. I have no idea how many people are. Or pie How many? Eaters. I don't think. Pie well, that's eaters. the thing. I mean, it's. You know, it's... wait, can I just tell you some British slang? Pie is also a, a slang for a woman's, you know. Hair pie. Pussy. Hair pie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, do you guys say it too? Yeah, we say hair pie. It's kind of an hair old, older term. Yeah. Gross. <laughs> yeah. Um, he said the reformers talk over and over about the nonviolent offenders in prison. Go tell these families, the pie family. That Anderson was just a low-level, nonviolent offender. And look what he did. He ate the pie. He ate the pie. He ate the hard pie. That's what happened there. (laughs) Anderson's going to be evaluated to determine if he is mentally competent to be prosecuted. He did tell a judge when he he pled guilty to the 2017 crimes that he got the 20-year conviction for um, that he was taking bipolar medications and that he had stopped taking his medication. So I think oh, he's definitely a bit the mental. First thing, isn't it? Yeah, but that's always the first thing they say. They always say, oh, yeah, I was off my medication. So naturally, being off my medication, I'm going to go and eat a heart and kill pies. That's, you know, that's always what they fucking say, mates. Yeah, I don't think it it it, it, it justifies that, uh, that those actions are. It does not justify yeah. that level of like, you know, leave the pie home alone. Leave the pie home alone. Mm-hmm. What do you have here for the second story? So this second story, which I am delighted to tell you all, happened just down the road from me. Like Whoa. this is kind of nearly in my neighborhood. In Cumbria, nearly. in your neighborhood. Nearly. Huh? No, it's in the, it's in my neighboring county of Northumberland. Oh, oh, Northumberland. So, sadly, sadly or happily for those who fucking hate when I do accents, can't do a Geordie accent. So I'll just be. Um, if you can do a Geordie accent, say it in your head. Before we so, start, though, quick question. Is it a shithole or not? Parts of Newcastle are a shithole. I thought you said but it was Northumberland. Northumberland, I, but this is Newcastle. Oh, right, let's go with like 99% of Northumberland is a fucking shithole. Okay, all right. Because I, yeah. Puts in perspective. Some fucking awful towns in Northumberland. <laughs> so, 48 hours in hell. It was horrific injuries of football coach tortured by thugs who filmed themselves carving nonce on his back. Ooh, God, it's like getting a brand, a horrible brand. So, Jordan's story, he was attacked with an axe, a sledgehammer, a knife, a dumbbell bar, and a dog chain during this 48-hour nightmare ordeal. Oh, that's like an arsenal of weapons there. It, it is like that you can just find laying around the house. Yeah, so attacked so, him with anything. Very utilitarian. The thugs tied him to a chair. They set his hands and feet on fire. On fire, David. As they carved the incorrectly spelled word nonce into his back. Yeah, how did they spell nonce? How they hard is spelling, that to spell? They are spelling nonce, N-O-N-S-E. Because in my, I can really see, so like this guy's tied to a chair. His hands and feet are on fire. And they're just going, somebody's like, ah, let's write nonce on his back. And then halfway through it, he goes to write the C. And they're like, nah, what you doing, mate? It's like nonsense. Nonce. It's not got a C in it. 
And instead of any of them getting out their phones to check how you write nonce, they were like, yeah, it's with an S, mate. How Carve dumb it. do you Carve have to be it. to not know how to spell the, the word nonce? Or nonce. Yeah, especially because it's like our word. As a Britons, as Britonians, they should be very proud of the word nonce and the history behind it. But and they're now, just like, fuck it, can't even spell it, mate. And to make matters even worse, now you got nonce carved in your back and back, it's spelt yeah. wrong. <laughs> it's and like... there's also the, the zero evidence that this guy is a nonce. Oh, so he wasn't even a nonce to begin He's with. He's not even a nonce. Oh, um, my God. Jordan, who is only 28, he believed he would be murders. Murdered because the gang were, you know, doing all this. They discussed killing him and dumping his body. And then they were going to frame him for rape. <laughs> Got 28 years old. Now he's got the word nonce carved in his back. How big? All across his back. Across his back. Across nonce his back. Nonce spelt wrong. 28 year old guy. If you look up, guy. you can see the injuries. They're all in the um, the news articles. So the people who are doing this to him are Jamie Barker, Lewis Herman, and Rebecca McNally. And they all admitted wounding with intent. And then there was another woman involved called Chelsea Wilson, and she admitted un unlawful wounding. Yeah, I'm going to so, show you a picture real quick of these, of these, these fine these people, these upstanding good, English citizens. Good-looking bastards, aren't they? Oh my there God. you go. You look at his arm, it almost looks like a fake arm, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, because it's all started to heal. It's, yeah, it's all, like, cut up. So if you, um, let's say you uh, started dating a guy, and uh, he had under, you know, undergone some kind of horrible traumatic experience like this, but you didn't know about that. And uh, you know, you guys were getting intimate. He took his shirt off, and the word "nonce" was on his back, <laughs> spelled wrong. Would you be turned off? Like, would you like? Would it? Would you get dry oh, down would be there all of a sudden? <laughs> oh, you would that. ask him about it. Would you? Would you continue? Yeah, of course. I mean, like, <laughs> firstly, I'd be like, he did good work spelling that. You know, you must have done that in the mirror with like an, a scalpel. Scalpel, you've done that reverse, but you've spelled it wrong. You'd get tattooed, wouldn't you? You're gonna have to get tattoos. I, I don't know what you could do. I mean, you'd plastic surgery or something to remove it. So the reason that this is all kicking off, kicking off is because, well, this is what the court heard. They were told that Jordan had known Wilson and Ford for ten years, and she called she called him on February seventeenth last year claiming that her boyfriend, uh, Barker, one of the other good-looking guys, had assaulted her. So this guy made his way round to her flat, and um, is he, white he assaulted. But, was yeah, he... I think there's so some he white was gonna be So Jordan was going to be the a white knight here, and he's going over there to help her out. Yeah. Okay. And then he decided to stay. He assaulted Barker. So like then all four of them were like, let's make this into a party. So they all started taking MDMA and they had a bit of a drink. Wait, wait, okay. Hold on a second. So Jordan, the guy that yes. was attacked, he goes over to White Knight and uh, and saved this girl who claimed she was assaulted. And then he assaulted someone? He, like, fought someone when he went over there? Yeah, he, he assaulted um, her boyfriend, who she said had assaulted her. It's all very... Like, this is drama, isn't it? This very is like chappy. Drama, drama with, like, you okay, hun? Yeah, very and, chappy. Yeah. And it went on, like, he went over on, like, the 17th. And these guys are carrying it on until February the 21st, which is my birthday. So, wait, they're all taking MDMA. He went over, he assaulted one, and then they're like, let's drinking. just all party and take some MDMA. This is bad MDMA, because have you ever wanted to physically hurt anyone while taking MDMA? I've never once 
felt inclined to carve the word nonce in someone's nonce back. Someone's back. Under MDMA. You want to you hook people, don't you? You want to hook people and tell them you love them. This is not MDMA t- they're taking. It's bathtub speed. I think it's cut with bleach or something. I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. So, and also, while they were attacking Jordan, these very big brain people, they were filming the event and they put it on Facebook Live. <laughs> So wait, they're carving the word nonce in this guy, lighting this they're guy's hands on fire, out on smacking him, him with like a sledgehammer. Fire. They and they put him the with Facebook wine live. Bottles. And he's on wine bottles. They're telling this guy that he's going to be murdered and it's on Facebook Live. Sounds like a great podcast. I'll check it out. It, yeah, <laughs> it's probably got more views than this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So the police instantly alerted by, you know, some terrified Shrek meme-loving mum on Facebook, and they went round, and the house was just covered in blood. There was blood, like, all up the walls from where they'd been torturing him. And his skin, by this point, because you're talking 48 hours of torture, his skin was yellow because he was in acute kidney failure. He was going to die. Jaundice. I know. He was nearly there. He had broken ribs. A broken nose, one broken toe, numerous cuts all over his body of varying depths, including over a dozen wounds to his forearms. He had extensive bruising to his face all over his body, a deep cut in his into his thumb, so deep his bone was visible, cigarette burns on his arms and hands, and of course, the word nonce carved on his back. Spelled incorrectly. Spelled incorrectly. This is like the worst MDMA trip ever. It's it's you awful, know? isn't it? Yeah, not fun. So J- Jordan says that the injuries I sustained are horrific, and I generally thought they were going to kill me. I had accepted that this was the end for me. All I could think about was my children and family. I feared I would never see them again. Instead of killing me, they decided to scar me for life and carve knots in big letters <laughs> onto my back and degrade me for life while I was strapped to the chair. The footage was shared with almost everyone in my local area, and my friends and family had viewed how it was torture. The humiliation is beyond description. Being tortured was horrific. Wouldn't you love it, right? Oh, right. If this guy was your enemy, and it just popped up, you were like on Facebook, and it popped up, and you were like, hey, this fucking cunt's finally getting what's coming to him. crack a beer and be like, I'm going to watch yeah. this. Sit yeah, back this and enjoy like, this. This is good. So, like, now... He's got these scars, both physically and emotionally. He can't go back to work as a football coach. He can't support his probably 10 kids anymore. His, his life is all effectively over. Do you think he tries so, to like say that the word nonce, because it's spelled with an S, is something else, not oh, an yeah, actual I mean, pedophile? He could be. He could, he could say it's like an acronym for something else. Yeah, or like some yeah. kind of like candy or something. I don't you know. Who knows? You're going to have to get a tap, mate. Um, so this is this is another part that I found hilarious. So Barker, the guy that he beat up, had seventy eight previous convictions. <laughs> seventy eight, and the other guy, Herman, had twenty five. Good God! Yeah, they that eat... many convictions, and they're yeah, still so like you've... going out torturing other people. So you've got seventy eight convictions, twenty five convictions against you. How long do you think they were jailed for? I'm hoping like longer than the guy who ate the person's heart out and the other story, like 20 years, 15 10 years, years free 10 months. years, 10 years. Do they get out early on good behavior? They will, but I doubt they're going to be good. Yeah. So I don't think these me. guys are going to be good. <laughs> I think these are some bad apples. So the two ladies McNally who had seven previous convictions, she got nine years and Wilson Ford 
who had a clean record, no previous convictions, two years. Wow. Two years. Wow. Two years. And they tortured him for two fucking days. Good God. Bloody yeah. Britain, man. I think Soft what I think they should do is have to take like you know some what? English courses back. or something. They- they should bring back hanging for people who incorrectly spell the word nonce. Yeah, I think I think they should have to take grammar lessons or something like that. I mean, how could between the four of them, not one of those <laughs> fucking morons knew how to spell the word nonce? It's big brain times. I would have loved to have been there for that bit when they were arguing because I bet one of them said, "No, it's with a C. It's with an S. No, I it's, swear with, it's a C. with a C. No, if, it's not. It, it's if they'd bloody been slag." Me, and they were putting it on my back. I'd have been like, it's with a C. <laughs> yeah, it's like, spell it's it right if I'm going to be branded for life. Yeah, you know, scarred for life with it. On the NHS. God. Now, that's the true tragedy here. Mm. Misspelled the word nonce. It is. You know? Anyway. Uh, people send your stories. Stick around podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we have some phone calls coming up next. 323-522-4032 is that number. Remember to keep it under three minutes. And we'll play it here on the show. Uh, before we get to our first call, though, here's a word from Adam and Eve. Hey, guys. It's me, Stephen. I'm a huge fan of your show. Thanks to your awesome coupon code, Diddle, I can buy myself loads of good sex toys. Since both of my wives died, my look Eric's disease got pretty bad. Let's just say things in the bedroom got pretty boring. But thanks to adamandeve.com and coupon code diddle d-i-d-d-l-e I am now a new man. Thanks. So we got a few phone calls to get to. 323-522-4032 is that number. Uh, the first call is somebody who's uh, kind of helping us out. He listened to the show. We were confused about something, which happens frequently. And, it does uh, happen. He's helping us out. I like it. Hey, Dean Kate. So I'm, I'm listening to this week's episode, and you're playing that, uh, that uh, uh, movie clip where the gal pisses on the guy. And you're wondering what he said right before that. It sounds, I, re- I rewound it a couple of times. It's- this is uh, Ilsa Shewolf. This is when we were talking about the Nazi uh, Nazi porn. Yeah, he's saying I love you, I think. Yeah, and there's a scene where the guy uh, yeah, says something he's while saying, he's getting pissed on. Yeah, it's, it's very erotic. Very erotic. Sounds like he's saying, Ich liebe dich, which means I love you in German. Yep, so there you go. anyway, keep it safe, keep it wrong. I like this guy's voice. Danke schön. Yeah, das ist super gut. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks for clearing that up. Yeah, I like that guy's voice too. Ring back and do a whole segment in German and it'll be like I'm doing back in school. Did yeah, you have to when you were in school, did you have to like study a foreign language? Yeah, we um you had your choice, Spanish, French, or German. I did Spanish. We, yeah, we only had French or German and I did German. Yeah, it's Spanish. You can pick up languages, it, though. Well, yeah, it. when you're a kid, you pick up languages. I wish I would have stuck with Spanish. I mean, I can still kind of remember stuff. I'm bad at the romantic languages, but I like Germanic because it's like, it's like based like English. Like you'd say, hello, my name is Kate. Like, hello, my name is Kate. 
Yeah, that's not too hard. When I was in yeah. uh my when I was in Spain, this is like um like twenty years ago now, but when I was in Spain, I was the only one that could speak Spanish. And like Madrid, like there weren't even that many people in like nineteen ninety nine that spoke, you know, English. It was like you know, most people didn't even know English or broken English. Anyway, I was able to get two grams of hash and like a gram of cocaine just speaking in Spanish. Yeah, well, I was that's, impressed. Well, that's the test. All you ever need when you go traveling abroad is you just need to say like, how can I get a beer? Or like one beer. That's all you need and like it's, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, that's pretty much it. You see, so one, two, three, and say how to say hello and thank you. It's, it's easy, mates. Next call we have here is the atheist preacher calling nice. in about the snake handler. Oh, cool. Hey, Brother D, Sister Kate. This is atheist preacher. And wow, you guys really shook the cobwebs off of a memory uh, talking <laughs> about them snake handlers. So I've been to a few of those services. I've, wow. always, I've always wanted to go to a snake handler service. I, I don't think you see too many around L.A. I wonder if there's any Jewish snake handlers. I doubt it. That'd be great. Yeah. Uh, my Nana and my Papa, rest in peace, both of them, they, uh, they used to live in Missouri. And this was like 2008, 2009. I must have been shit. 11 or 12, somewhere in there. And I spent, they spent the summer up there, you know, baling hay and taking care of the cows. And I had to go to church. And they went to this church. It just falls uh, in this damn old barn. And yeah, it's, it's base, it was basically what y'all saw in the videos. Um, I don't remember fucking everything about it, but I remember if you guys care for a little inside look. Um, they would always, it's more like a regular church than it seems. Um, they were Pentecostal. They look so shitty. It was like this very rustic looking broom. You yeah, know? so they, did his grandparents go there all the time? I think his were grandparents snake were snake handlers? handlers. Oh my word. You think like <laughs> his, you think AP's parents would have been like, yeah, you're going to go out and see your, your papa and mama, but don't go to church with them. Your pep pep and your mima. You're not allowed to go handle their diamondback rattlesnakes, all right? Yeah, we've told them you're not going to church with them, so you can sleep in on a Sunday. Had to have been a sore point, you know? Yeah. Especially growing up, like, with your parents being snake handlers, being like, you know, Mom, Dad, I don't think it's a good idea to play with a fucking venomous snake. Especially at the age of 12. There's only only one type of snake you want to be handling. Hey, yo. (laughs) You. Though, so... Take that what you will. But so they start out with fellowship, basically come in, you know, people hanging out, drink coffee. You know, I was a little kid. I was playing with the other kids. And then, you know, you sit down, you hear the sermon, and the preacher usually is holds snakes there, uh, is holding them while he's preaching. And then... I mean, I guess I would sit way in the back. It'd be cool to watch. I mean... It would be cool to watch. I don't think you have to handle the snakes if you don't want to. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. It's like, I don't know how many... Like, did you ever have to go to any services? Did you ever have to go to church or anything like that? 
Never. I'm from a non-religious household. Oh, that's that's good because it's boring as fuck. It is so fucking boring. You know, so, up I mean, until my dad's funeral, I'd never been to a funeral before, and I'd never been in a church for as long as that. Wow. Did it was like you? Uh, service. Did your body start smoking as soon as you walked inside? I was like. No, I mean, growing up, the son of a rabbi, it's like, yeah, we had to go to temple all the time. It's fucking boring. Boring. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's church, isn't it? It's nobody's, there's no sign. You don't buy a ticket on the way in. No, it's just, yeah. (laughs) So if my father was up there, like, fucking with rattlesnakes and shit, I'd been like, well, this is cool because he might die and get bitten. You know, it's (laughs) like, it's. You know, there's, there's some suspense going on rather than me just hearing him. As soon you know, as a snake is involved in a situation, it automatically becomes 10 times cooler. Yeah, 10 times more interesting. Are cool. I would yeah. like to sit in the back away from the snakes, but I would like to watch it. Mm-hmm. They have what they call, like, I think it's like channeling the spirit or embodying the spirit or something like that. And and that's what you, that's the, the video you guys saw them dancing around and listening to music and singing and, you know, doing the whole. You know, speaking in tongues and... Whoa, what did you just say there, AP? I thought he was reading from the Torah for a second then. Nah, he was speaking in tongues there. What did you say? I want to know. Give us a call back. I thought tongues was just like he spoke nonsense. Well, I think that was nonsense, but maybe it means something. I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't think there was a meaning to it. Oh, that's some sort of nonsense. Um... <laughs> Nonsense. And then after that, they did. You know, they had they had baptisms and all that shit. I don't with the snakes. Like were the snakes involved with the baptism? <gasps> oh my god, wouldn't that be so cute if the little snake gave you a little kiss on your forehead with its little tongue? Oh, I would love that. I just think if you dumped them in like a pool of water that was filled with snakes. Oh yeah, no, not you. Don't even need the water. You would just like put all the snakes in a tub, and then you like just dip the baby's head in in the snakes, and then they all give you a little kiss. Oh, delightful! Or possibly bite you, and you die instantly because you're a child. They're not going to bite you because they're nice animals. Because Jesus is protecting you, isn't that the way it works? I think that is the way that that it works. If anybody got bit, uh, I think I would. If somebody did. So at least at least for that summer I was there, you know, they were people were passing around snakes while they were channeling the spirit or whatever it was they called it. But yeah, people were passing around snakes and nobody got bit. Um I don't know if they're trained snakes or they were trained snakes or what. I was just a kid, but uh that's that was some fucking crazy shit, man. And that was like the first step to me losing my my little boy religion. And then yeah. But that was some, that's some fucking crazy shit, man. You do not want to fuck with those people. Uh, yep. Uh, I reckon that's about all. You guys have a good day. Adios. Lick my balls. <laughs> wow, we did the classic Trucker Paul salutation. That's, well, he's our new Trucker Paul, but he's he is, also yeah. he's, he's the preacher Paul. Was the uh, former preacher, atheist preacher. You know, I was thinking at the end, wouldn't it be a great weapon? I'm pretty sure it probably kills the snake, but it would be a great weapon to like go into battle with if you're like going like this, like using it like a lasso, a, a snake above your head. Like people would just be intimidated. If you had like a rattler and you're shaking it around your head and you're going into battle, that's scary. I guess. I mean, it could bite. It might bite you though. It won't bite. Think? No, because you would hold it by its tail and you'd be swinging it around. 
People are going to be scared of that. <laughs> Might hurt guess, the snake, yeah. though. I'm, yeah, it probably would kill yeah. the snake. I'm not in the business of hurting reptiles, so I wouldn't be, probably be about dizzy. That. Yeah, I, you know, I I would love to see... One of these days, I definitely want to go um, to uh, to a snake handling service just to see it. I just want to check it out. And I mean, they're, they're all over the South once you go there. You know, when I, when I went to Nashville for my uh, 40th birthday um, a few years ago... 20 um, years ago. No, it wasn't. Black no, it wasn't. And white telly was still popular. <laughs> it wasn't my 40th. I think it was like my 42nd. But anyway, when we were, went there, you could go to a service that Al Green leads. No way. Did you yeah. go to it? Uh, you know, I wanted to, but uh, he ended up, I guess, not being in town that day because we called and he wasn't there. Oh, I would have gone to that for sure. Yeah, but fucking Al Green is a preacher. To see Al Green yeah. lead a service, how yeah. great would that be? I don't think there's oh. any snakes, though. Al Green is good enough. He can replace a snake. But yeah, I would go. I'm totally the type of person that would get um, bitten by a snake. Because I'd be like, can I hold all the snakes? <laughs> You'd want to play with the snakes? I, I would wonder... want to play with all the snakes. I love them. It'd be cool if they did other animals like tarantulas or something. Like other venomous Ooh, creatures. Would... You know? I would totally go to tarantula church. Tarantulas yeah, like, cool. And everyone would have like spiders crawling all over them. Yeah, I would do that. I, I think I would pretty much go to any animal church. I don't. Unless it was a monkey church, I'm not going there. No, 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 I'm not going to monkey church, and I'm not going to go to panda church either. Actually, or I wouldn't mind. Church. I wouldn't mind a monkey church. You want to go just, to monkey church? Just They're if the monkey rip your face off. Yeah, if the monkeys are leading the service, and you just have to like watch it and go along with it, I could get be, into that. It would be mayhem. <laughs> They'd be chucking their shit at you. It would Is be bananas. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you, there, atheist preacher. Um, yeah. Love hearing from you, brother. Next call we have here is uh, one that I actually had forgotten to play that I've had for a while, and then I, I just found it the other day. Do you remember when, uh, this was like a couple months ago, but this guy's great. I, I met him when I was in Tokyo. He's a long-time listener. Adam from Tokyo. He oh, called yeah. in. He was talking about uh, being arrested, and we asked oh, yeah. him what, what a Japanese prison's like. Yes. Well, he had this called back to, to tell that. us what the Japanese prison's like, and I guess I misplaced the phone call. So then, what the hell, D? Well, I just found it, so now we can listen to it. I don't think there's snakes in the Japanese prison. No, I think there's metaphorical snakes. Yeah, metaphorical snakes. Sick, Renan. It's uh, Adam calling from Japan again. <clears throat> Suitably wasted. Drinking some fucking... Uh, Sour plum highballs. <laughs> Sour Anyhow, plum highballs, uh, I appreciate huh? you guys airing my call the other day. Um, you know, despite you guys having no idea what the fuck you're talking about, about Japan <laughs> as usual. But I won't get into all of the corrections department shit, of <laughs> all your errors. But uh, answering some questions. Man, you guys asked me like 15 questions in a row, too. And I'm drunk, so I'll try my best. But uh, he said, when I was in jail, like, how could I speak to people? And I guess there was a, there's a black dude in the next cell over who is really cool. Actually, he's a nice cat who someone had sort of framed for selling dime bags when he was basically a club owner, but that's some racist shit. I'll speak on later or never, but cool guy in the next cell. He would translate for me a lot. And that was awesome. And then you know, that's gotta be tough. Cause when you're in prison in Japan and you're American or, you know, uh, not Japanese. <laughs> like, how do you, you would be able to know what they're telling you to do? 
Yeah, that's a good point. But they will tell you what you're doing. Did you ever see, I can't think of the name of this uh, movie, but it's about like this English guy who gets busted for dealing heroin in uh, Thailand. And he goes to a Thai prison and becomes a kickboxer. Did you ever see that movie? I don't know that one, but I know the old one where he's in like a Turkish jail. Oh, no, that's, What's yeah, Midnight Express. It's an Oliver Stone movie. I know that yeah. one. But, mm-hmm. the, but this one's gnarly. It's like he's in a fucking Thai prison, and he's an English guy, only white guy in there. And like, yeah, they're like raping dudes, beating the fuck out of people. And then he becomes like this kickboxer. He like trains and like is good at isn't it. That, isn't that the backstory to Bane in Batman? Did no, Bane that's get the raped backstory in a Thai to prison? That's the backstory to bloody Batman. No, you know? well, this, this is a true story. It's a true story based on a guy. It's, well, it's Batman not... ripped it off. Well, maybe. I mean, this guy, did, was Bale's Bane Batman. dealing heroin in Bangkok? No, it's Bale's Batman, remember? They got, he's in the jail, and he kind of gets liberated, and then he comes back to Gotham. But it's the Bane, the one with Bane, isn't it? But did Bane train to become a kickboxer? I would have sex with Bane from Batman. <laughs> Just putting it out there. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I forget the name of the movie, but it's pretty good. It's very, uh, very violent. Anyway, it'd be difficult to be in a foreign prison. That's what I'm trying to say. Of course. Uh, yeah, Rambo Chan, you're so cute. And, uh, man, but mm-hmm. you're asking me about uh, handicap wrestling. <laughs> like, this is a really <laughs> regular thing in Japan. Like, yes, every single person in Japan gets together and watches handicap people wrestling. <laughs> I mean, I've lived here 17 years. I never fucking heard of it. <laughs> Absolutely, it's up there with the panties in vending machines as being some sort of a mythology. But I would say you can buy panties. Come on, dude, you can buy panties at the porn shops. You they... can go to handicap wrestling as well. I didn't see vending machines with panties, but you can go to porn shops and they have like little plastic tubes with panties and a picture of the girl. I don't know if they're yeah. used or not. I'm assuming they I'm are. I'm coming over to Tokyo. Me and Adam are going to go to handicap wrestling. And then after it, we're going to go and buy some used panties. You'll be a great you day. Pro- you probably could sell your panties and make some money over there. Every episode, you tell me that I could sell my panties or my socks. I'm just saying. Stop trying to monetize every situation. I'm just saying. I know saying why you're doing this because em- of your background. I'm just saying we <laughs> embroider sick and wrong on your panties. Oh, okay. And we sell them here on the show. Kate Rambo's used panties. A little sick and wrong logo on it. Think of the think of the money. Think of the dollars. I'm thinking, right? yeah, I'm thinking of the shekels too. Yes, just like you are constantly. <laughs> think of the shekels. <laughs> that I did feverishly masturbate to uh, something called Smack Girl about fucking 15 years ago. There was like this sort of. It was almost like anime. It was like these chicks, really cute girls who do like pro wrestling. So I've always I've always found pro wrestling and. Um, uh, a lot of UFC stuff when it's grappling, really fucking gay. <laughs> I really like yes. to watch it. He's it got is. a point there. UFC, it, like I can't get into UFC just because they spend an inordinate amount of time cuddling. I know it must fucking hurt, but they're just—it's all it looks like is like two grown men cuddling each other and they're sweating. It gives me the gay bumps. <laughs> as Steele would say You as know Steel I don't mind say. seeing uh, Like a supercut of UFC best knockouts Because then you know yeah. it's going to be like Some crazy shit someone getting knocked out But when you actually watch a UFC fight 
nine times out of ten, it's two guys in a 69 position rolling around on the ground trying to choke each other out with their balls in their face. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's, boring. it's boring. And it's, yeah, it gives you the gay bumps. It's not, I don't understand why anyone would want to watch it. I don't you know either. But, yeah, I don't really, I don't, you know, I think I, I, I know I've told this story on the, on the show before. You might not have heard it, so. Let's revisit it. I remember when uh, I was living in San Francisco in the Mission, I was living right down the street from a Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. Um, Gracie's like one of the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu famous guys. And I was living, he had a like a dojo or whatever the fuck is um, right up the street. And I was like, I used to do Taekwondo when I was a kid. And I was thinking, you know, I'm going to get into martial arts and Jiu-Jitsu sounds cool. I'm going to check it out. And so I went over there and I asked the guy, I was like, oh, I'd like to learn more, you know, check it out. I'm interested in learning more about it. He's like, well, why don't you hang out, watch maybe a session or a training, you know, a class and see if you like it. And then we can, we can talk about it. So I'm like, all right, cool. So I'm hanging out watching it. And yeah, sure enough, it's like these dudes are wearing like fucking spandex shorts and they're in a 69 position. And this guy's balls were pretty much like right in this dude's face. Like it was like Arabian goggles. His balls were right on the guy's fucking face. And I was like sitting there looking at him. They're in this position trying to like choke each other out for like five minutes. And I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I'm going to go. Is that when you <laughs> walked home with your chub? And just had a wank <laughs> as soon as you got in. Like, That's free porn to you. That's why I left. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. But I do like watching girls uh, try to tear each other's uh, bikinis off, which is what this smack girl thing was all about. And it was fucking dope. And uh, that's about it, man. Thank you guys for hearing my calls as usual. And uh, I love you both. And I think Kate is fucking dope. Welcome. Welcome, Kate Chan. And uh, come find Kate Chan. I'm from Japan. Peace. Kate Chan. <laughs> this guy was rad. Ring... Yeah, I want to bring back with some more crazy Jap- Japan stories. I don't know. Ed was got, cool. Got like, to have more. When I was there, uh, I was there with my friend Danny, and like we ended up hanging out with him for a day. And he took us to this area of Japan where this is one of the weirdest things about Japan is every restaurant you went to, instead of just having a menu with pictures of, of actual food, they had like these fake plastic representations of food. Okay, one of my favorite things in life is fake plastic food i love it you would love you would love this area of tokyo oh my god i'd be trying to buy the representation it's expensive it's super expensive i couldn't believe it like how much yen it costs for these fucking like plastic you know sculptures of food but it's like he took us this area where all the restaurants must buy the plastic sculptures of food and i mean there's just like i don't know 200 stores that you walk in and it's like this is where I buy the plastic steaks this is where I buy the plastic eggs this is where I buy the <gasps> oh my, I it was the weird it was the weirdest thing it was He's so weird. weird yeah do you think Adam's ever been to the suicide forest do you think Adam's ever discovered a body I don't know if he's ever discovered a maybe I don't know I didn't ask him that actually I'm sure he's been in the suicide forest not that far from Tokyo yeah do you uh, think people just go there for like little day trips to go and like I, eat the sandwiches you know so I want it's at the base of Mount Fuji. And so yeah. I wanted to go there. My buddy Danny was just like, I'm not going to go. It's lame. And I was like, what? It's not I think lame. Danny, Danny was scared of finding a dead body because he'd have to live Danny's stream lame. on the internet. I think Danny, Danny wants to see two men grappling. He Stop slagging to... off your friend, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Adam, it's good to hear from you, man. Uh, yeah, people can call the Sigmar Hotline, 323-522-4032. 
Uh, people, check out the uh, Sick and Rock Reddit page. It's kind of going off. I've been posting some stuff there uh, recently. Disgusting stuff. Some disgusting stuff. There is some. Uh, there's a lot of gross shit on there. But it's pretty. It's a yeah. It's it's an interesting place that Reddit. R slash Sick and Wrong Podcast. No spaces. Also, the Patreon is blowing up. It's blowing up, dude. <laughs> Had loads of good guests on that recently. It's really yeah. Fun. We actually, I you know, I posted about it on Facebook, but Stephanie and Jer were on uh, doing an outtake. Um, talking about like the horrors of being a pregnancy, and it was gnarly. It's fucking gnarly. The whole thing. Like I couldn't even imagine. I couldn't even imagine my wife going through that ordeal. I know. You it know. Is. God, she's very brave. She, I so talked to her. I talked to her this week, and she was saying that uh, she went to the doctor, and they said like her cervix is dilated like three <gasps> or four centimeters. Any so day now. Any day now, it, it's gonna happen. So it's kind of crazy. Team um, Viper, by the way. I'm oh, yeah, Viper. yeah. Everybody's... The, there's one thing that we get into in this outtake is uh, I give her this list of names, like 30 names, and she's like, yay or nay, but Viper is one of the names that Kate came up with. It's good. That, I like good. it. Viper is a cool fucking baby. He's going to grow up to be like a like a, a CIA a operative. No, I'm seeing he'll be a beatnik with a pompadour and a leather jacket on him. A G.I. Joe character, that's what's going to happen. But a badass. Yes, but that, that G.I. Joe character has been discontinued in like the 50s. That's how old you are. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, if you go to Patreon right now, we get all this extra content. Uh, we do an extra news story, um, extra phone calls. We also do a segment called The Sick and Wrong News. Um, where uh, this week we do a story of an Edinburgh man getting his tongue bitten off by an Edinburgh woman in a street brawl and a seagull eating the tongue. It's a, it's a great story. We also go into a lot of detail about Lady Gaga's dog walker getting shot and her Frenchies stolen right up the street, right? literally like six streets away from where I live. Um, so if you if you check that out, there's a new segment we got going on. We also do our, our bonus mini-sode, an additional episode of Sick and Wrong called Sick and Wrong Overkill, where Kate did the whole uh, episode on Sam Kinison, her favorite comedian. Yeah, I may or may not cry as well. So you should listen to it to see if I may or may not cry. Kate is very inspired by uh, Sam Kinison and his comedic abilities. I love Sam Kinison. Um, I we also actually recorded the first installment of D's Wacky Records. D's where Wacky play, Records coming out this where week. Where you play Sam Kinison? So I played two. yeah two uh, different bits of Sam Kinison. It was actually kind of fun. I was wondering how I was going to do this because I pretty much just had to like hook, put a mic up next to one of my speakers and just play records right off of, uh, and a lot of the, you know right off my turntable. A lot of these records are super old. I mean, I've had them forever. You know, something some belonged the to the rabbis, right? Yeah, the rabbis yeah. records. So, but yeah, you know, basically, I just got really high and played novelty records for an hour. Um, but yeah, it's a it lot fun. of fun. Yeah, go check out these wacky records. Anyway, all that action is going on Patreon.com/slash Sick and Wrong for five bucks. You basically get an extra show every week. Um, also, the T Public Store. I know we just had a sale uh, this past week, but. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there. If you want to get some sick and wrong merch, just like uh, the banner behind both of us, you can get these a uh, lot of sick and wrong merch going on. Just go to sickandwrongpodcast.com slash shop and click on the picture of the Pope. Uh, finally here, sick and wrong song of the week. I really, really like this song. 
and I was so bummed to like, this happens every now and then you find a song and you're just like, I got to get this record. And you go on Discogs or eBay to see if you can find it. And you find the record and it's like $800. Yeah. You know? Happens a lot. Yeah. Happens a lot. So anyway, this, this song is uh, by a guy named Panther Man. He calls himself Panther Man. It's a kind of Dutch glam rock from the mid-70s. His name's Frank Klunhar, and he took the persona of a costume glam rocker called Panther Man, um, which he's basically just wearing this, like, leather suit with, like, a kind of like a Black Panther kind of mask with, like, claws. Um, he was inspired by a Roxy Music gig in 1974 in uh, Rotterdam. And uh, he was just like, you know what? I'm going to make this, uh, this Panther Man... That's my character now. And so he'd wear this like black leather Panther Man suit and come out. And he did, he only really put out a 45. But this 45 yeah. is like $500. It's like a seven for $500. I know. So <laughs> yeah. oh, I was so bummed about it. Mm. Um, but yeah, he's like, you know, you can, you can do a search on YouTube. You can see him in his custom made black leather suit and his mask. It's, a, it's pretty amazing. So the song that we're going to end is, is his self-titled Panther Man song. It's so great. I love it. He's like, I am the Panther Man. I'll show you my claws. Yeah. It's, it's so great. It's a great song. So we're going to end the show here with that. Um, people, we'll be back next week with episode 781. Till then, take a sleazy.
trying to think in like the 70s or 80s, were there any literary movements really? Not I mean, I guess... to the extent of the beats. Yeah, I There's been really... like little pockets, but I mean, when you look at how William S. Burroughs changed things and how Allen Ginsberg changed, even Kerouac himself changed things, there's been nothing like that ever since to come from a group of writers. There's like really... the, also the Bloomsbury group that was very early on. Yeah, I can't really think of anything else that would be like today's variation of that. Somebody I'm said trying to think of, like sick and wrong and... is a movement. <laughs> a bowel, bowel movement. movement. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go grab a beer. Hey, I got to take a piss. I'll be right back. <laughs> 